to start. Uh, and yes, I have the, the button. Yep. We're live. Yes, I've done. Yep. There's on. Yep. Okay, just a brief overview in relation to today's meeting. The oral evidence. The oral evidence with Judge uh, Marion. Somebody hasn't muted, please. <laughs> I don't know who that is. It's quieter now. Right, thank you. We'll, we'll start again. Uh, we have an oral evidence session with Judge Desmond uh, Marion on the recommendations of the findings in the report of his review of the hate crime legislation. Oral evidence session with the Northern Ireland Children's Commissioner and consideration of proposals for the call of evidence in relation to the Justice Sexual Offences and Trafficking Victims Bill, and then written papers on XSNI's annual performance and activity report, and uh, that will give us the, the basis of our meeting today. Just to advise members that uh, you're welcome to use the mobile devices as long as they are in airplane mode and all devices are muted. Uh, this includes members' tablet devices. Uh, they can connect to the Assembly Wi-Fi. Also, to remind members that we are obliged to declare any financial or other relevant interests which may reasonably be thought by others to influence their approach to a matter under consideration. Any members who have interest to declare in relation to today's business should do so or when uh, the particular matter arises in the meeting. And if there's no declarations of interest, we'll proceed. Uh, can we have agreement for the two oral evidence sessions to be reported by Hansard? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Uh, apologies. Uh, there's apologies from Doug Beatty, Sinead Bradley and Emma Rogan. Uh, Peter Weir plans to be with us. He has another meeting, but he may be slightly late. Uh, Linda, Rachel and Robin and Gemma are joining us by Starleaf. and We welcome them to the meeting today. Uh, there is Emma has uh, delegated her vote to the deputy chair to Linda under standing order 1156. Item two: the draft minutes of the meeting held on the first of July, uh, held on the first of July, 2021. There are pages five to sixteen of the meeting pack. Uh, are you content that this is a true reflection of the proceedings of the meeting held on the first of July? Agreed. Okay. Item three, matters arising. Correspondence from the Executive Office Committee regarding the Troubles Permanent Disablement Payment Scheme. And that's at pages, uh, page 18 of the meeting pack for uh, that correspondence. The Committee for the Executive Office has written raising concerns regarding the awarding of the contract for the delivery of the Troubles Permanent Disablement Payment Scheme to Capita, given the recent report by the Public Services Ombudsman, which found systematic maladministration regarding the personal independence payments, for which Capita also has the contract. The Executive Office Committee has asked that the Justice Committee gives assurances that there is no repeat of the issues with the PIP process. Uh, the Committee agreed last week to request further information from the Minister of Justice regarding the appointment of Capita to deliver uh, the scheme and the details of the procurement uh, process. Uh, so this is really just to note the correspondence from the committee of the executive office 
uh, and give uh, obviously any further information that we receive in regard to this matter, we can uh, refer, refer it back to uh, the Executive Office. Uh, the, for, the further informal meeting with the Victims' Representatives Group on the scheme was held yesterday, and along with Linda, Sinead, Gemma, Peter and Rachel, we attended. And I think members will agree that that was a useful uh, exchange, and I think that there are a number of issues which have arisen out of that. They raised a number of issues of concern, and you'll find uh, a paper outlining those on pages four to six of the table pack. And I think that out of that, there was a number of things that we had probably thought would be useful uh, to do. Uh, one was that we should request uh, departmental officials and capita to uh, appear before the committee. And I think that we should, uh, in the light of the ongoing concerns. However, one of the things that I think came out of the meeting with the groups yesterday was their concern to ensure the process is not any further delayed. So anything that we do will be in a in a in the in the round to ensure that we are scrutinising and that we are paying close attention to this issue, as opposed to we seeking to uh, delay the launch of the scheme and the, the rollout of the scheme. So if members were content, I think we should uh, ask for the officials to come probably late September and capita, which will give us a few weeks to see how the scheme has rolled out. The other issue that we had raised yesterday at the meeting was whether or not there was any need uh, on whether this could be done. And that was for a test case to be taken by the department and it run through the system to see, I suppose the difficulty we have with that is, how do we judge it? How do we monitor it? How do we assess it? But uh, I just throw that out to members and uh, Linda, do you want to comment? Thank you, Chair. Um, first of all, thank you for facilitating the meeting yesterday. And obviously, we, we've had meetings with, with the groups before, and I think that they are extremely useful. And um, in relation to, to this issue and any issue where it involves victims, I think that we do need to very much take our steer from them. And, and in fairness, I think that's what the committee are doing and, and what you've just outlined is exactly shows exactly that that this is what they've asked us to do so that's what we're going to be very careful and cautious to do and i think that's really really important one of the other things supposed to come out of the meeting yesterday was the fact that we as a committee will keep a close eye on this the department has engaged well to date with the um victims groups and i hope that that close engagement continues I hope that they continue to take on board any issues and concerns going forward. And I think it's a really good idea to bring um, the officials and capita before the committee. And obviously it is helpful that it, that wouldn't happen until it has been in place for a number of weeks. And just to put on the record again, that we have made it clear as a committee that we are open to the, the groups, the victims groups contacting us at any time with any concerns or anything that they feel is not where they're not being listened to. But I would be hopeful that the department will listen to them directly. But we certainly have, have, have an open ear to them and we will take our direction very clearly from the victims groups. Thank you. And just to thank the groups again for meeting with us and, yeah. and being very forthright in, in what they had to say. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Linda. And I think to the other, the other issue 
which I think if we if we could agree that would be maybe helpful is and and again I'm open to to suggestions as to how we would do this but one of the things that has been helpful to committees in the past is and uh, I understand it's happened here in the committee is to get someone else to advise who is either outside of or well versed in the particular issue and and I noticed and I picked it up yesterday and I had for, to be honest, I had forgotten that one of the reviews that they made reference to was the review that was carried out by Walter Radar in regards to PIP. And then there was another review, and then we have had this re report from the Ombudsman. And it's whether or not we get uh, maybe Synergy or we get uh, someone like Walter Radar or someone else to advise us and to be there to give us independent advice as we step our way through this over the next number of months because this issue is going to be with us albeit there'll be a, a a window between september and the end of the year that i think we need to pay particular close attention to so if you were agreed would we ask christine maybe to scope out for us over the next few weeks a few ideas as to what that would look like who how we could procure it how we could do it so that we have additional uh, additional help. And what I was thinking was, for example, uh, if, whoever it was, so we'll not define it down to any one individual or any group uh, or organisation, but whoever that was, that they would work alongside the, the groups that we met yesterday because they have access to individuals and they would be able to signpost us with their consent to people who would be able to give their experience, their information, and that would give us an independent eyes and ears on this in a way that I think would add value to the scrutiny of the committee. So uh, I put that out to see whether you think that would be worthwhile. Uh, Rachel. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh -huh. Okay, perfect. Um, so, um, yeah, absolutely. I have no issue with um, any of that. Um, the most recent uh, review was done by Marie Kavanagh um, and was published there in December. So, with Walter, who had done 2016 um, 2017, yeah. published in 2018, and then the most recent one. And I certainly think if the um, you know, there's, there's plenty, as we all know, there's plenty of evidence of, of what has happened to people with PEP process and with plenty of learning to do. Um, it's not a new issue. It's been going on since PEP was installed in Northern Ireland. Um, so I think there's plenty that uh, Capita and indeed the Department of Justice can go on in terms of what can go wrong. Um, so I have absolutely no issue at all with, uh, with scoping that out. Um, in terms of what uh, yesterday and in line with the Executive Office's um, committee's uh, letter, I mean, in, in our table pack, there's a number of questions um, and in no way would this be um, delaying the rollout of the scheme at all. That was loud and clear from all the groups that we met with yesterday that this well, this needed to be in years ago. It's, it's not, uh, there's no question there of delaying further. But um, the questions on the practicalities of the scheme and all of those questions that are outlined in the report, we would probably need to get those answered before yes. meeting with the officials. Yes in September because the scheme will have already started. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So those are the kind of issues I think Eve, I, I appreciate that we're in recess, but um, there would, I think the department should have answers to and Capita should have provided answers to well before we um, meet with them or indeed the yes. scheme is rolled out to ensure those concerns are raised. We'll send those off today. 
or by before the end of the week. Okay, and I think that's a, I think that's a valid point. Yep, thanks for that, Rachel. Uh, Robin, and then just let me check, Linda. Do you want to come back in again, or did you just not bring your put your hand down? You want to come back again? Okay, right, Robin, and then Linda. Uh, sure. Yes, uh, I'm very supportive uh, of, of the initiative that you had uh, just outlined in terms of bringing some expertise on board. I think that's a very definitely a positive way way forward. I would just think that, Chair, in terms of um, as by way of encouragement, uh, and if the committee would agree that uh, yourself would put out a short press statement actually indicating that uh, this is a direction of travel that the, the committee has has agreed. I think that would indeed uh, give some comfort to, to, to the victims groups that we're taking all the positive steps that we can take uh, in resolving the issues. Okay, well, I think we can, we can draw something up and then we can share it with members. And if they're content, I think it will be very short. It wouldn't be detailed other than to give an assurance that given the continued public commentary that there has been around this, that we as a committee uh, are paying. Uh, and, and I think it's the point that Linda made, and I think it was made, it really was brought home to me yesterday after the meeting with the groups, that you know at the end of the day, these are the people uh, who represent the people that this is about. And, yeah. and I think that they need to be assured that this is not going to be dramatics for us. This is not about uh, us trying to do anything other than ensure that this process delivers for them in the way that it was intended. So uh, I think if Christian's content with that, we'll draft something, share it with members, uh, and if you're content. But my, uh, my view on this is keep it very short, very focused, to give an assurance to, to people that we will be the eyes and ears of the scrutiny role in relation to this. I think that's what's required, Chair. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. Linda. First of all, just Chair, on, on what Robin has just suggested, I think that that's an excellent idea and the, the tone in which you just talk is exactly the tone that we need to be taking. And I think that in fairness, this committee has been very united around, around this issue in terms of how to address it and ensuring that we deliver for the victims, for the people who, who need it. And that, I think that is exactly the right tone that needs to be taken on it. And it shows that we are united on this issue. And I think that's really important for the for the victim to understand that and, the, and the, those who represent them. And then just secondly, yes, I absolutely would support your call for somebody who has expertise and is independent to oversee this. Because obviously as a committee, we have so many other things going on. I certainly wouldn't like um, those who we met with yesterday and those who they represent to think that this is just something on a long list. I want them to know that it, it is important to us that they are delivered for and that they are delivered for in a manner in which, as all the groups have as their own, um, I suppose, st statement from each group that they, they're first and foremost, the most important thing for them is that any, anything they do, they do no harm. To those who they're, they're they're working with, and we need to ensure that we, as a, a government who are trying to deliver for them, take the same approach that we don't do anything that does any harm or further traumatizes them. So I think it's it's an excellent approach, and, and the statement also okay. and the tone of it is 100%. Okay, thank you, Linda. Okay, members, then we'll move to uh, item 
2, which is a committee forward work programme, and you'll find that on pages 19 to 23 of the pack, and that's just really for uh, noting. Uh, item 3 is an informal meeting with children's organisations. An informal meeting was held on Monday, the 5th of July, with a range of children's organisations at their request to discuss the proposals for the Secure Justice and Care Campus and relevant uh, juvenile justice issues. Uh, along with myself, Linda, Sinead, Peter and Rachel, we attended that uh, particular event. Uh, a note of the meeting will be circulated in due course. The representatives raised a number of issues and concerns regarding the proposals for the Secure Justice and Care Campus and the general direction for youth justice, and these are outlined in the paper at pages 7 to 9 of the table pack. During the informal meeting, reference is made to the research which include youth the Children's Law Centre, the Acro and Voipec commissioned from the uh, Universities of Nottingham and the University of Ulster to chart the implementation of the Youth Justice Review recommendations with a specific focus from 2015 onwards. The report outlines the wider concern that the overall trajectory of youth justice policy lacks transparency and strategic direction and that there are clear gaps in the evidence base on which policy is being formulated. It also includes a section on development since the review, including uh, the uh, repurposing of the woodlands, which members may find uh, informative. The group have provided a copy of their search for members, and it's at pages 9 to 99 of the table pack. And so, just in reference to, to this issue, that the, the report... The research report to the Department of Justice uh, maybe should go to them for a response and in conjunction with the Department of Health uh, where this is necessary and maybe provide a copy of the letter to the Department uh, to the Committee for Health if we're agreed. Agreed? Okay, item four, just check. There's nobody had any comment on that. No. Rachel? Sorry, Chair. Yes, it was just in relation to the um, recommendation that would, uh, all the, the details that, and the issues that the children's organisations had raised with us. And not being presumptive, but I would assume that there will be other issues raised by the Children's Commissioner uh, yes. later on yes. in relation to this campus. So if all of the, the um, issues outlined by the children's organisations on top of the ones that, let's say, uh, the Children's Commissioner may also be raising later on, um, we could raise with the, uh, the Committee for Health and also with the Department for Justice. Um, and in relation to the, um, the tracking of youth justice uh, in Northern Ireland, the Trace and the Review, um, I see it was submitted in June. Um, I do wonder if we could also get a copy of the Department's response, if any, to that uh, review. Okay, we will ask. Thank you. Linda? No, okay. Uh, Robin, did you something on this? No? Okay. Uh, no, I'm not sure. Okay, no. okay thank you. Uh, item four then is the review of the hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland and the report findings and the recommendation. And this is the oral evidence with uh, Judge Desmond Marion. And Judge Marion uh, has agreed uh, to attend uh, today to discuss the findings and recommendations of 
his substantial report, and I was just saying to him uh, before we come in, uh, one of the, uh, the committee staff kindly gave me a hard copy of uh, his report, which is three volumes. So it was a substantive piece of work, uh, and uh, I think it bears uh, to be considered in that light. And uh, we want to thank him and his colleagues who have uh, put all this together. So the relevant papers for this session are at pages 25 to 155 of the PAC, a copy of the Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act 2021, uh, which was referenced uh, by Judge Moran, asked to be, was also circulated to members in advance of today's meeting, and that's at pages 101 to 118. So can I welcome uh, Judge Desmond Marion and Noel Marsden, the Senior Review Manager, uh, to the meeting, and also just to advise that the session will be reported by Hansard and the transcript will be published on the committee uh, webpage. But, uh, Judge Marion, it's lovely to see you again. The last time we met, I was in a different role uh, in the Policing Board, and uh, it's good to have that perspective as well from, from the police perspective as was, I think, maybe even Linda, uh, the, the Vice Chair at the time as well. So you're very welcome to the committee. We have members on Starleaf and ourselves here. So we'll just ask you to uh, make a few opening comments and then members, no doubt, will have questions. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Mr Chairperson and uh, Madam Deputy Chairperson, members of the committee. Um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to provide an opening statement setting out some of the main findings and recommendations of the independent review of hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland. This is the first such review of this legislation, and it is timely in my view, given what I believe to be the current unsatisfactory state of the law in this area. I note you also have been given the departmental response, which is helpful and constructive. And as you've just alluded to, I, I feel also members of the committee would benefit from a close analysis of the Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act 2021, which became law, I think, in April of 2021. On a general point, hate uh, crime law, like all criminal law, must strike a balance between giving the state the necessary powers to protect victims on the one hand, but on the other hand, must ensure sufficient safeguards to citizens from unwarranted state control. In recent years, hate crime legislation has been reviewed in, different, in, the, in all the areas of the United Kingdom. Um, Lord Brackadale reported on the matter in 2018 in Scotland, and after further consultation, the Scottish Government brought forward most of his proposals now enacted in the Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act 2021. In England and Wales, although the Law Commission initially reported as long ago as 2014, it was felt by them that a full-scale review involving a more wide-ranging examination of the existing legislation in England and Wales was necessary, and this process continues at the present time, and you may be interested to know that a final report from the Law Commission of England and Wales um, is expected later on this year. In Northern Ireland, there were similar calls for review of the public order, Northern Ireland Order 1987, from a range of sources. A commitment to review hate crime legislation was included in the draft programme for government. And in 2017, the Chief Criminal Justice Inspector noted that a review of hate crime legislation was urgently required. So in June 2019, the Department of Justice set up this independent review of hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland to be conducted by myself. 
The remit for the review was to consider whether existing hate crime legislation represents the most effective approach for the justice system to deal with criminal conduct motivated by hatred, malice, ill will, prejudice, including hate crime and abuse which takes place online. I'll just describe briefly the methodology and the consultation process. At the outside of the, outside of the review, I asked several individuals to form a reference group to help new ideas and as a quality mechanism for the review. This group was split into a core expert group and a group of key stakeholders. The core expert group included several leading academics in this field from the United Kingdom and Ireland, also senior representatives of the PPS, the PSNI, the Department of Justice and Victim Support. This group met regularly, scrutinising and challenging emerging ideas to ensure that any final recommendations would be robust, fair and practicable. At the heart of the review was public consultation. A consultation paper was published in January 2020, and I commend that to the members of the committee because it provides a great deal of background information not included in the final report. It also had an online questionnaire and despite COVID, in total, there were over a thousand responses from organisations and individuals to this process. Some idea of the importance that the stakeholders and the public regard this important subject with. The review team then organised a series of public outre outreach events throughout Northern Ireland from January to March 2020, providing vital input for the review. From the outset of the work in June 2019, the review team met or had discussion with a large number of organisations and individuals. The work of the review received significant publicity in the media, including a number of interviews at key stages. I also met with the Law Commission and with Lord Brackadale to consider their views. I then moved to what I call the shortcomings in the current law in Northern Ireland. From an early stage in the review, it became clear to me that unlike other areas in the United Kingdom, in Northern Ireland there is no specific criminal offence for hate crime and no legal definition of the term. Leaving aside public order legislation, which is quite separate, and the Justice Act Northern Ireland 2011 dealing with indecent racist or sectarian chanting at regulated football matches for the moment, hate crime is only addressed at the sentencing stage in this jurisdiction under the Criminal Justice No. 2 Northern Ireland Order 2004 which enables a sentence to be increased where it is proven that the basic offence for which the person has been convicted was motivated by hostility against one of the currently protected characteristics, that is, race, religion, sexual orientation or disability, or where the offender demonstrated hostility against one of those characteristics either at the time of committing the offence or immediately before or after it. The scale of the problem of hate crime in Northern Ireland is significant. The Criminal Justice Inspectorate has found that when population is considered, the figure of recorded hate crimes is actually higher than the equivalent rate in England and Wales. In that jurisdiction, it is estimated that over 80% of hate crimes are not reported for various reasons, and there is no reason to believe the situation is any better in Northern Ireland. The current ineffectiveness of the law, I believe, is likely to be one of the main reasons for the poor level of reporting. As regards the main findings and recommendations, somewhat surprisingly in relation to incidents that are reported, since 2018 racist hate-motivated incidents have actually overtaken sectarian hate-motivated incidents in Northern Ireland. When one considers the proportion of the population from a black or multi-ethnic background, the reality is even more stark.
There is approximately one in 31 chance of being the victim of a reported race hate incident, compared to approximately one in 1,700 chance of being a victim of a reported sectarian hate incident. The main finding of this review, right at the core of the review, is that hate crime law in Northern Ireland, such as it is, is generally ineffective and requires urgent substantial reform, including legislative change. And I believe that without such change, the law will continue to fail victims and society generally. It is now some 16 years since the introduction of the 2004 order. It has been the subject of widespread criticism over many years and in my view is not fit for purpose, nor is it capable of being reformed. If I could give the committee a practical example of what I mean by such a statement. The review team looked at the transcripts of the sentencing process of Crown Court cases for the year 2018-2019. These are cases identified by the Public Prosecution Service as cases aggravated by hostility against one or other of the protected characteristics. Sixteen such cases were identified by the PPS to be dealt with at the Crown Court level. Of those 16 defendants, the PPS only in fact eventually prosecuted four of them on the basis that the alleged offence was aggravated by hostility. None of the defendants who were convicted received an increased sentence, as the law intends, where the judge accepted that the aggravating feature of the offence had been proven beyond reasonable doubt. As I say, only four of these cases were actually prosecuted as offences aggravated by hostility. And whilst the judges in those four cases accepted that the aggravating features had been proven and said so in open court, they did not give a greater sentence, or if they did, they did not state they were doing so. I have recommended that it will be much better to tackle hate crime through a new model, or what is called an aggravated offence model, i.e. where a hate crime aggravation can be added to any offence and tried as such. This would not require any, any additional increase in sentencing, in, in, in maximum sentences. But this, this particular model brings the hate element into the trial itself and does not simply leave it to the sentencing stage, which, which has failed. This will encourage the police to collect evidence of hate at an early stage, something that does not appear to happen regularly under the current arrangements. It means also that aggravation will appear on a defendant's record, but gives better protection to the defendant as it requires the prosecution to prove the aggravation at the offence stage in the Crown Court before a judge and jury, which fits well with the legal doctrine of fair labelling. In this respect, I believe the Scottish model provides an excellent template. It's been in operation for many years and it can deal with any offence, not just the uh, limited suite of offences currently dealt with in England and Wales as aggravated offences for race and religion alone under what's called the Crime and Disorder Act 1998. I note that this key recommendation, the core of this review, has been accepted by the Department of Justice. Current legislation refers to the notion or the concept of hostility against one of the protected groups. I believe that a wider range of attitudes should be introduced, such as bias, prejudice, bigotry or contempt. The current thresholds for proving um, that these aggravated offences are demonstration of hostility and secondly, or alternatively, motivation. Experience in England and Wales has shown that motivation is extremely difficult to prove. I am persuaded that a third test, the so-called by reason of threshold, should be added. This is particularly important for the protected characteristic of disability, where prosecutions are very rare under the current law in England and Wales.
The current protective grips, both in relation to the 2004 sentencing provisions and public order legislation in Northern Ireland, are, as I say, race, religion, sexual orientation and disability. And I recommended that these protected groups should continue to receive protection together with new recommended protective characteristics of age, sex, gender, and variations in sex characteristics. Provision should also be made, in my view, for any future legislation to be framed in such a way as to allow any other protected characteristic to be added to the list by statutory instrument if there is sufficient evidence emerging to so show such a group or group, groups are victims of hate crime or hate speech. As regards the proposed new uh, characteristic of gender stroke sex, I believe there is a very strong case to be made for the inclusion of this category, given the wealth of evidence of hateful targeting of women, especially online and the additional harm this causes, <clears throat> including gender mainly to give protection to women would send a very strong message that trolling, sexual harassment and hate directed against women will not be tolerated. Gender per se is not a protected characteristic in any of the other countries of the United Kingdom or Ireland, and I believe that this is an opportunity uh, for Northern Ireland to take the lead in protecting women. I do acknowledge that there are some practical concerns in certain contexts, such as in domestic abuse and sexual offences, but these issues can be resolved. Gender would also include transgender identity. This, in fact, is the only part of the United Kingdom where transgender identity is not given some form of protection. The PSNI collect figures in relation to incidents and crimes against transgender people, and these figures indicate that hate crimes committed against these folk are on the increase. The Department has accepted that transgender identity should be included as a protected group. On a more general level in relation to gender, in his review of hate crime legislation in Scotland, Lord Brackadale recommended the inclusion of gender as a protected group. The Scottish Government accepted the evidential base for this, but they did not follow his recommendation fully. Uh, and I understand the reason for doing that was that they had already given a promise to uh, women's groups uh, to consider introducing a new crime of misogynistic harassment. However, there is provision, as you will see, in Section 12 of the Scots 2021 Act for the addition of sex at a future date. I conclude that there is also a good case for adding age to the list of protected characteristics, meaning a range of ages, in view of the challenges faced by older people in the form of elder abuse and age discrimination, particularly if the concept of hostility is widened to include concepts such as prejudice and contempt. Age is now included as a new protected characteristic in the Scots legislation. Some people argue that people do not hate or are not hostile to older people. On the other hand, I believe that targeting a group due to an actual or perceived weakness or vulnerability is a form of contempt or hatred in itself for that group and displays an attitude of hostility based on active disdain for members of that group. In this context, uh, the importance of intersectionality should be reflected in the drafting of any new statutory aggravations. This is where hate crime is committed against someone on the basis of more than one protected characteristic. As regards sectarianism, the findings of the Working Group on Defining Sectarianism in Scott law, Scottish Law, produced in November 2018 and chaired by Professor Duncan Morrow of the University of Ulster, should be applied in Northern Ireland, in my view, subject to any necessary adjustments. In the new decade new approach agreement of January 2020, 
The parties indicated their wish to see sectarianism given legal expression as a hate crime. The current religious group indicator does not adequately capture the meaning and impact of sectarianism, which extends beyond religion to include aspects of nationality and political identity. This proposal is accepted in principle by the Department. I have recommended also that there should be a clear and unambiguous statutory duty on relevant public authorities, including councils, the Department of Infrastructure and the Housing Executive, to take all reasonable steps to remove hate expression from their own property and broader public space. In this respect, you will know that it will be important to consider the report of the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture and Tradition uh, arising from work uh, done by that group over a four-year period, 2016 to 2020, and sent to the Executive Office in July 2020. The Public Prosecution Service and the Police Service of Northern Ireland agree with my recommendation in this regard. There is also a significant gap in the law in Northern Ireland regarding restorative justice. It is provided for offenders under 18, but not for those over that age. I have recommended that there should be a new statutory scheme for restorative justice generally, not just for hate crime, for over 18s to meet this gap in the law, and that it should be organised and delivered by a statutory agency similar to the Youth Justice Agency in Northern Ireland. The Probation Service appear well suited for this task, with the presently accredited restorative justice groups continuing to provide community support and support to the statutory agency, which would take the lead in any such collaboration. As you know, these groups are currently Community Restorative Justice Ireland and Northern Ireland Alternatives. Victims have constantly argued for effective victim-led restorative justice, which often may have better outcomes for low-level hate crimes uh, than imprisonment. Turning then to the question of hate speech, which is a completely different genus to hate crime, the Public Order Northern Ireland Order in 1987 relates to what are called the stirring up offences, i.e. the stirring up of hatred or arousing fear, conduct which encourages others to hate a particular group. It should be noted that this legislation has been little used over the years, not only in Northern Ireland but in England and Wales and in Scotland. There appears to be limited awareness of, of the law, although the law in this area is rarely used, it does raise important issues around freedom of expression. Real and genuine concerns were articulated to me by several faith-based groups. It is crucially important to reiterate that the issue of freedom of expression has a central role to play in ensuring fairness between the complainant and the defendant in compliance with the Human Rights Act and international treaty obligations. And I fully accept that freedom of expression and equality rights provide the fundamental legal framework for considering hate speech. Setting the correct balance and protecting human rights, whilst at the same time addressing hate speech, is one of the most important and challenging parts of this review. The value rightly attached to freedom of expression requires very careful appraisal, and in Chapter 9 I devote no fewer than 56 pages to consideration of this key issue. I have advocated that there should be a formal statutory recognition in any new hate crime law on the importance of freedom of expression under Article 10, Articles 9 and 10, i.e. the freedom to exercise one's religion and the freedom of expression, and all the other rights guaranteed by the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. And I remind the Committee that the European Court of Human Rights has confirmed for many years that there must be a right to shock, offend or disturb. In respect to any new consolidated hate crime and public order law, scrutiny and oversight, I believe, are crucial. 
I have recommended that there should be post-legislative scrutiny by the Assembly through this committee and other groups to monitor the effectiveness of any new legislation which is eventually passed in the next mandate on hate crime and hate speech. I recommend that such scrutiny should occur regularly and formally at three-year intervals and, if possible, include an element of public consultation. Finally, I have further recommended that consideration should be given to establishing a hate crime commissioner for Northern Ireland and that such a rule could properly be shared with domestic abuse. In its response to the review, I note that the Department of Justice has stated its view that instead of that, there should be a victims of crime commissioner with a particular emphasis or focus on hate crime, sexual abuse and domestic abuse, and I would strongly support this alternative proposal. Uh, <clears throat> Mr Chairperson, that concludes my opening remarks. Thank you very much. And uh, again, <clears throat> a word of appreciation and thanks for all the work that has been done in relation to it. It's interesting to note uh, that in terms of the Scottish proposals, they have now made some additional changes yes. because there was some concerns that were raised. Uh, I noticed that they have agreed to limit the offence to intentionally stir up hatred. Yes. I think that, that was a welcome move because you're, you're well aware that, take for example the issue of the Public Order Northern Ireland Order 87, uh, in the responses to the recommendation for the repeal of that, uh, in your own report, there was 97% of people who said that it should be retained. And I, I just wonder how, and I suppose this ultimately is an issue for the department, as to how we will strike that balance. Because in all of these things, it is about balance, it's yes. proportionality. And there has been a considerable degree of concern raised, both in, in what happened in Scotland and uh, in terms of what may possibly become the end point in terms of legislation. So do, do you... In, in the light of we have your report, we have now seen, and I, I, I take that you've only seen it recently, but we have the, the first draft, of, at least from the department, as to where uh, their thinking is, although it is lettered with, uh, it is, you know, it should be given consideration to, uh, as, as most things, the department is, is not completely and absolutely definitive as to where this may land. But do you believe that there is some adjustments that could be made, even on the basis of the recommendations that are already made, that would make it easier for the drafts people to come up with a piece of legislation that would have more buy-in across the piece, as opposed to where we may be with some elements of, of the proposals? Yes. Well. Two things. First of all, um, in relation to this, the, the bill introduced in Scotland, uh, they did not have in that bill a specific reference to, uh, explicit reference to Articles 9 and 10 of the European Convention, freedom of expression of religion and uh, freedom of expression. Uh, and I don't know whether they poached it <laughs> from my consultation paper, but it looks like they might have, because now you'll see right front and centre in their act They've, they've now, having yeah. never mentioned it before, they now have it. And I don't take any particular credit for that. But to be serious, the, 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 the thinking behind that is, I understand the, there's great sensitivity among faith-based groups. I mean, yeah. thinking particularly if the, 
Evangelical Protestant Society, the Christian Institute, yeah. and uh, other groups. What they're concerned about is that the, uh, a, a, an over-rigorous public order legislation might have a, what they call a chilling effect on the ability of pastors, ministers, priests perhaps, to um, criticise other religions. And uh, they, they note that, for example, in England and Wales, there are specific defences, uh, which I haven't recommended here, and I'll explain why, specific defences in relation to the criticism of other people's religion or sexual orientation or same-sex marriages. Now, the reason I haven't included it is not because um, I don't understand those concerns, it's precisely because I do uh, understand those concerns that I devoted 56 pages to looking at this issue. And I came up with the following line of thinking. First of all, the changes in the law in England, which have been there for many years, now we've never had those in Northern Ireland since 1987 in the public order legislation. We've never identified particular protected characteristics. You'll remember that they're sex, religion, uh, sec, um, race, religion, sexual orientation uh, and disability. And we've never prioritised any particular uh, protected characteristic in that way, adding a special protection for it. And I have seen no evidence in, 33 years of, in the 33 years that our law has been in operation that that has worked to have a chilling effect on, um, on, on the right of uh, various religious people to criticise other religions. On the other side, I also see that academic writers, including the Law Commission, have recently indicated that the introduction of those specific defences has in fact meant that it, it makes the law very difficult to prosecute anyone in relation to those particular areas, so that it, it may be damaging the purpose behind the law. But understanding the, 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 the sentiment and the, the very exquisite concern that those folk have, quite rightly good folk have, I have suggested formally referring to the European Convention of Human Rights. Because, as I said earlier on in my remarks, for 30 years now, since a case called Handyside was decided, the European Court said everyone should have the right to shock, offend and disturb. And I would have thought one could make a criticism of another religion quite easily by shocking, offending and disturb without going the extra mile. What do I mean by the extra mile? Well, it may interest you to know that in England and Wales, the, the so-called religious defence allows those who wish to criticise other people's religions not only to do that, to shock, offend, disturb, but to actually abuse other people's religion. And that's a word that, and particularly in Northern Ireland, I, I find a bit chilling. I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't... If you want to criticise someone else's religion, you know, say that Islam is, is wrong, idolatrous, whatever you want to say, or make similar criticism to Christianity, good luck to you. Uh, you're perfectly entitled. That's what living in a free democratic society means. But to go further and to abuse someone else's religion is too far. The European Court has said it's too far, and I don't really understand why it's there in the law in England and Wales. And the other thing I'll say just on that is that I think to pick out individual characteristics and create special offences for them offends against the principle of fairness. I think that if you're going to do that, you may as well provide the same protection for other um, protected characteristics. But I think it is a very important area, and I know this committee and the Assembly will give it very close consideration. It is very important to know how to strike the balance. And I think the best way to strike the balance is to make sure that in any proposed legislation, Article 9 and 10 rights uh, are there enshrined in the law um, and with explicit reference to the European Convention. I hope that yep, goes some no, way no, to answering your no. point.
That's very useful because I, I, I'm led to believe that in the, I think it's in the English equivalent, it actually talks about ridicule and insult. Yes. You know, which is, you know, akin to what you've made reference to in terms of... But it goes further, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, abuse. It includes the word yeah. abuse. And the word abuse in, in the Oxford Dictionary is something like, the description is to vilify another person. The last thing we need in Northern Ireland is people going around vilifying, yeah. even though the prosecutions are very rare. And, and the other thing I would point out to the committee is this. Um, the, the duties under the European Convention before you take a prosecution, before you introduce a law, and then before you take a prosecution, are very strict. And that's why the number of prosecutions is only five or six a year. I think last year in England and Wales there were 11 prosecutions. And look at the population of England and Wales. Look at all the various criticisms there are of religion in England and Wales. Yet they only managed to bring 11 prosecutions, which either shows the law is working well and that people obey the law, or it shows you that this is actually quite a small area of concern. But even if it is a small area of concern, I know that these... The, the, the folk who have a particular interest in, 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 in religion regard the freedom of expression to express their antipathy towards other religions as vitally important. And I wouldn't be sitting here justifying these recommendations if I didn't think that what I had proposed adequately protects that. And, and leading on from that, there is the issue in relation to one of the, the recommendations in regards to the director of public prosecutions be personally involved in any decision to prosecute offences of stirring up hatred. Yes. Do, do you think that, that in a sense, by if that was to be implemented and that was to be the case, does that, by uh, practice, undermine the very intent in relation to freedom of speech because it is, in a sense, coming to a conclusion before the decision has been made? Well, first of all, on the general question of the personal... At the moment, that the law is in England that the Attorney-General must give personal permission. Position in North to bring a prosecution. The law in Northern Ireland is different. The law in Northern Ireland was changed a few years ago to take it from the Attorney-General, who, of course, is responsible to government, to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who isn't directly uh, accountable to government. But a, a decision in the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal ruled a few years ago that the... the um, the Director of Public Prosecutions could delegate that power to a senior member of staff, or if he wished, he or she wished. I think that the issue of freedom of expression is so important, and the number of prosecutions so small, that it should be a personal decision. I don't think it would cause any increase in their workload, and if it did, well, so be it. I think it's such an important issue, and that means that the Director would have to look at each case, each file, in which there was going to be a prosecution or a prosecution was recommended and apply the European test of proportionality to that particular case and that would give an added buy-in to the protection ensure that only those prosecutions where egregious behaviour had occurred. Behaviour likely to, in, in, where the intent was to stir up hatred uh, would actually end up in the courts. Okay. Peter? Yeah. Very interesting. A couple of questions, um, I suppose, following on. I, like, I, I suspect, I might be wrong in this, but in terms of the different approach taken in England and Wales, particularly on the the issue of, of how far you can go in terms of freedom of expression as regards religion, yes. you know, I suspect that part of the motivation may be less directly that um, situation of, for the sake of argument, one religious figure attacking a... Um, sort of another religion, um, as opposed to whether it's a level of protection um, that I think there's, a, there's clearly elements of it within Northern Ireland, but a stronger 
issue within England of those who would come from a very secularist or anti-religious point of view having a level of freedom of, of expression. Um, and I know that whenever at times there have been examinations of, of either hate crime or even blasphemy laws, um, as much as the particular issues have been raised by various religious groups, it's quite often been by some who would come from a satirical background or whatever, taking a high level of particular perception in, in relation to that. I wonder, you mentioned, I think, very clearly, I think part of the, the issue with a lot of this will be striking the right level of balance. And I suppose in a different sphere on that, clearly as regards a range of, of hate crime issues, there will be what is explicitly prescribed in law and therefore be part of the legislation. And then where the level of interpretation will be there within courts. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, there's a wider, we raised this recently with the Lord Chief Justice, that there will be a, a tension there sometimes between politicians and judges as to whether there's a certain level of mission creep at one level by judges, or alternatively, um, a feeling from the judiciary that at times, you know, politicians, elected representatives are almost trying to override what is a sort of a form of natural justice. I wonder if you have any thoughts, particularly around this area, as to where you feel the balance of precision should be in terms of um, the issue of how far we go in terms of how explicitly we legislate and how much is left to the level of discretion of the, the courts, albeit then with the, the sometimes complaint in, in a range of things of this was never intended in the first place mm -hmm. type scenarios. Well, uh, Mr. Weir, um, two things in, in relation to your answer, and I hope I am answering your question as directly as I can. First of all, judges... Like I, should, I should say as well, I mean, if, if you don't, um, you may well find your place on the Assembly Committee rather than as, um, from a legal background in that, in that regard on if you're avoiding answering a question, but go ahead. <laughs> um, well, uh, so far as the, 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 the courts are concerned, mm -hmm. they, like any public authority, are bound by the European Convention. Under the Human Rights Act, they have a duty to apply the principles of the European Court. And a very good example of that, which I thought would allay the fears of some in the evangelical community, was the decision of Miller and Humberside Police mm -hmm. last year, in, in the spring of last year. Very briefly, Mr Miller uh, was engaging in, in somewhat offensive tweets back and forward. Uh, he he uh, disputed the basis of transgenderism, and the person who was at the receiving end sent back one or two pretty offensive tweets to him. But the person who was the transgender person complained to the police that this was a, a, a hate uh, because transgender is protected mm -hmm. in England. And the police came to his door, in fact, to his place of work, and then they sought an interview with him. They recorded it as a hate incident, not a crime, because no crime had been committed. But they warned him that if he continued to send tweets like this, he, there could be an escalation as far as he was concerned. And then he, he demanded an interview with senior police. And they also confirmed that there could be an escalation and that they had recorded the incident in their, in their, in their papers. Now, the judge in the case, and Mr. Miller challenged this uh, on European Convention um, principles. The judge, Mr. Justice Knowles, who heard the case in England last year, ruled that they were allowed, the police were allowed to record the information as a, an incident, but that what they had done beyond that was unlawful. They should never have gone to his place of work. They should never have indicated to him that there could be an escalation. In other words, they told the police they'd got it wrong. And even the fact, uh, he, Mr. Miller, um, so Mr. Miller won, which indicates that the courts are 
you know, root and branch behind principles of freedom of expression. That was a freedom of expression case in which the outcome was entirely satisfactory to Mr Miller. Mr Miller has taken a point to the Supreme Court, which has not yet been heard. The Supreme Court uh, said that it should go first to the Court of Appeal. The issues were raised in March of this year, although judgment hasn't been given. And why did he take it, since you would have thought he's won the case? He took it on a separate point, and that is, should the police be able to record mm. incidents of, uh, of, of hate, alleged incident hits, simply on the word of the, the person who allegedly suffered it? The answer that the court gave in the first case was, well, yes, they can, because the police need to show that they have t- a record of the incident. Um, but what Mr Miller's concerns are, and ones I would share, would be the suggestion that th- that, that record the police have could somehow make its way on to the police national computer. It could possibly be used against a person mm. if they were looking for employment. I'm assured by the police, and I've gone to the highest level on this, that that is not the way it works. They do keep it as, as a record, but it can only ever be revealed on a very, very stringent basis. I still have concerns about that. But I simply give you that example, that that particular case is an example that, in my view, the courts, by and large, do uh, take their responsibilities to apply the European Convention very seriously. I hope that goes some way to answering you. Yeah, the second point, just on a slightly separate point, you mentioned that, uh, and I know there was a level of controversy, some people take slightly different views on in terms of uh, what is the thorny question of definition of, because I think everyone can accept conceptually the, the idea that we should be doing all that we can to prevent sectarianism I suppose the, the devil becomes the detail of how exactly you define that and within Scotland you, you give the example that within Scotland there's been a definition which at times at various stages has had, had levels of controversy and you indicated that, that you felt that, that broadly speaking that should be um, the, the route of direction if you like for Northern Ireland but that I suppose to some extent it would take account of the particular circumstances. Yeah. I just wonder in terms of where you see the particular variations here between um, Northern Ireland and Scotland in terms of how you would see that being applied or perhaps defined. You're talking about sectarianism now? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that. Yeah. If, if I picked you up right earlier on, you'd, you'd said that yes, I you, think f- you felt the, the definition of yeah. that there was an NDNA commitment in terms of um, the issue of sectarianism um, and as part of that, the uh, there had been, after presumably a little bit of refinement, essentially a, a template, if you like, That's Scotland. Right. Yeah. But that there may need to be some level of, if I'm not exactly putting words in your mouth, but sort of paraphrasing here, but there may need to be some level of adjustment to that to take account of the situation in Northern Ireland. That it yes. wasn't, it just wasn't quite just a grafted onto Northern Ireland as a entire yeah. one size fits all. So I'm just interested in your thoughts in terms of where you see. The potential variations from from where we'd be in Scotland. Well, the um, well, there wouldn't be much variation to be honest. It's ju- it was a really a legal technical thing. In, mm. in, in Scotland, they have their laws slightly different. The actual definition and the principles that Professor Morrow and his group um, uh, set out, I agree wholeheartedly with, and indeed so does the PSNI and the PPS. And as I pointed out, the new decade, new uh, approach agreement of January 2020. Uh, it appeared that the various parties to that agreement uh, suggested that at last in Northern Ireland we should have a sectarian indicator because uh, goodness knows all of us uh, deprecate sectarianism, we're always saying that. But the only time it's ever mentioned in any legislation was in the Justice Act 2011 um, where it really, there, there's an offence created uh, of sectarian, racist or indecent chanting at regulated football matches, soccer, rugby and Gaelic. 
Uh, there's never been a prosecution under the Act, uh, which is maybe a good thing, I don't know. Maybe it means people are uh, listening to what the law says, or it may not. Uh, but when the Assembly tried to agree on a definition in 2011, they couldn't get agreement. And I was just hoping that by this stage in our development, uh, on further reflection, we may be able to, to, uh, to come to an agreement on a definition uh, along the lines of Professor Morrow, who's from the University of Ulster. It's really a question of looking at whether there might be technical tweaks rather than any yes, change of substance. Yes, I don't think a bit is substantive. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Linda. We'll bring Linda in by Starleaf. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Judge Marnan for, for the report, first of all, and the recommendations, and also for coming before the committee today. Really appreciate it. I have a, a, a couple of, of points just in really, and, and some of them you've, you've sort of probably partly at least addressed. So if I'm going back over stuff, I apologize. Um, just suppose, first of all, to to state that, that our party fully agrees with the statutory aggravation model for all offences and that that should be developed. But and you have talked a little bit to this. There is a fear that um, where the hostility or contempt element of a crime is more difficult to prove than the substantive offence, prosecutors might sometimes choose the easier option um, and disregard the aggravation and prosecute only for this substantive offence. I'm just wondering, have you any um, suggestions on how that could be mitigated against? Well, um, first of all, good afternoon to you, Ms. Uh, Dillon. In relation to the current situation, the problem with enhanced sentencing is that the issue of the aggravation doesn't arise during the trial. So you could take a simple example. You could have someone charged with a Section 18 wounding, very, very serious offence, which carries a maximum of life imprisonment. Under our current sentencing law, that the jury never hear about the aggravation during the trial. Uh, the prosecutor doesn't uh, develop any aspect of that. The police don't even necessarily collect information or evidence around that. And at the very end of the trial, when the man is usually a man, when the person is either convicted or pleads guilty, the prosecutor stands up and says for the first time to the judge, judge, I would like you to consider an increased sentence because we suggest that this crime is aggravated by hostility against race, religion, sexual orientation or disability. If the person doesn't accept it, and normally they won't accept it, then there has to be a, a trial within a trial where the judge on his or her own, without the jury, without that democratic background of a jury, then has to decide beyond reasonable doubt whether the aggravation is proven. And in that situation, the defendant is, is in difficulty because if he's pleaded guilty, he gets credit for pleading guilty. But if he doesn't plead guilty to the aggravation aspect of it, then he could lose credit. So it's really not very fair on the defendant as things stand. And therefore, and, and overarching all of that is the fact that, as I've demonstrated, and uh, Mr. Marsden, who's a senior review manager, and I spent many hours in the, in the records of the Department of, of the PPS looking at the actual files of these 16 cases. And, and I was quite shocked that only four of them had been prosecuted as hate crimes, even though someone in the PPS had originally thought that there were 16 of them. And I was even more shocked by the fact that even when the cases, those four cases were proved, the judge did not appear to increase the sentence, certainly made no reference to the law or increasing the sentence. Now, the, the point about introducing the new model, the aggravated offences model, is it becomes that Section 18 wounding now becomes Section 18 wounding aggravated by hostility. So that is in the indictment. That's what the jury see. That's what prosecuting counsel will open. So there's no question of it being forgotten about or downplayed. 
and it also means the police, from day one, from their investigation, will be investigating it as a hate crime from the very beginning. So the evidence is going to be gathered. And therefore, there's a much, much higher chance of cases reaching court and being dealt with seriously and appropriately. And that's the beauty of the new model. It's, we're saying a new model. It'd be a new model for Northern Ireland, but it's been a model in place in Scotland for many, many years, and to a lesser extent in England and Wales. And it works really well in Scotland. So there's no reason to think it won't work well here. And I was quite um, pleased to see that the Public Prosecution Service wrote a long piece in their contribution to the review agreeing with those sentiments and had in fact had done work with their Scottish colleagues and were perfectly satisfied this was a much better way uh, to, to ensure not only uh, prosecutions went ahead appropriately but also fairness to, to the defendant. That's, that's brilliant. I, I appreciate your answer in relation to that. And I suppose it comes down to, um, and I, I think your recommendation around that review, I mean, it's been something that's been very important to this committee around other pieces of legislation, that element of review, and I think it's 100% right. And we probably need to to ensure that the policing board, of which both myself and the chair were members, keep an eye on that in terms of the police to ensure that, that they are treating it as a hate crime and investig investigating them as hate crimes from the very beginning so that there is enough evidence then for the PPS to, to bring that. Forward, um, if you don't mind me, if, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. If you don't mind me adding, it's also uh, gratifying to note that the Police Service of Northern Ireland also support the change in the law. They recognise too, as does the PPS, the law is not working, and this has a knock-on effect. It means victims are then fed up. They don't go to the police and raise these issues because they know it's not going to work for them. Mm. So it's a win-win situation, I think, if we introduce a new type of law. I think you're right, and I think whenever there isn't good law, the police end up invariably being the people who get the blame for not delivering for people on the ground because they don't see past the the police response to it. Um, so I, I think you're right, and, and police do need good law in order to be able to to have, I suppose, a proper process in terms of investigation. Just just around the sectarianism issue, and again, I mean, we do support the 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 new legal definition of sectarianism. Um, the need for the statutory aggravation of sectarian prejudice could also raise the issue again um, around the the department had said to us that they, this needed to be in conjunction with the FICT report, and I know you did say that in your, in your opening remarks. I'm probably a wee bit concerned just because I'm not sure where FICT is at and if we're ever going to get recommendations from them. And I would be concerned that this would be held back as a result of that. And you've said it yourself. I mean, we need something in place. We need to have uh, a clear legal definition of what sectarianism is and racial hate crime. And again, I would say that this is something that the PSNA need because I'm sure all of the elected representatives on this committee will have the same challenges whenever they're they're constituents are complaining to them about different things, whether they're posters or flags or whatever they are, that the PSNA are saying they don't have um, legal cover to deal with them. And I, th I think that we have to bear some responsibility for that. And if we delay on this, then we're going to continue to have that situation. So I'm just wondering what your view is on, on in relation to that. If, if it is the case that FICT is going to hold this back, how, how do we deal with that or should we just move ahead with it in the legislation? 
Well, I'll have to pick my words carefully. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I think I'll dodge the question of when the FICT report should be released from the executive <laughs> office. I'm not a politician, and I think, it, I, think I, I should stick to my own, uh, my own brief. <laughs> so apologies for that. Uh, but what, let me put it more diplomatically. It would certainly be of great use to this committee and to the Assembly generally if the report could be shared. Uh, it took four years to produce and one might argue that a year is long enough. <laughs> and maybe I've said too much. <laughs> but it, it would certainly, to be serious though for a moment, uh, there is an you'll see the departmental response, both on sectarianism and on a hateful expression in public places, both references the fact that they're waiting for the, or they want to link this work that we've done in the review with the FICT report on these two key issues. It would certainly be most unfortunate if the work of, of, uh, of bringing forward a new public order and hate crime bill were to be unduly delayed by uh, waiting for the FICT report. So I, I would earnestly hope that this can, be, um, this can be produced to you and to the Assembly in, in a reasonable time frame. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to see this delayed on, on, on the basis of that. As I should, as I should it, also say, Ms Dillon, that if, for example, issues like sectarianism and hateful expression in public space are further delayed by, for good, maybe for good reason, by the fact that the FIC report isn't available, I would very much hope that this committee and indeed the department would press ahead with a, a hate crime bill in any event because there are many, many other pressing issues that don't depend on the FIC report. Okay. Your views are right that. Just one other um, issue to raise, Chair, if that's okay. Yep. Um, just on the restorative justice piece. Yes. I agree with you that restorative justice is vital. I think that it it works because it is community, it, it's based in the community and it works from the ground up. I know that you have talked about it being on a statutory basis and I'm, I'm certainly not hard and fast on this. I do think it's important that we retain those ground up um, community-rooted organisations because I think that's why it works and I know we had this conversation actually whenever I was on the policing board and to be fair I think that you, you agreed with that but I just want to put that on the record that that is something that you would view as necessary. Yes well um, there's no doubt that the community-based groups, the, the Community Restorative Justice Ireland and Northern Ireland Turnips do a fantastic job. They've been commended by the Criminal Justice Inspector and various other uh, uh, reports over the years. But I think one has to bear in mind that if one's talking about restorative justice for over 18s generally, with court ordered dispositions and, and reports back to the court, it seems to me vitally important that there be a statutory agency, probably the Probation Board, who can do that because the Youth Justice Agency is a statutory agency, independent, that does that work for under 18s. And although the community based restorative justice groups do fantastic work, remember where they come from and, and where their main focus is. They were set up originally to deal with um, basically paramilitary um, uh, type cases. Some of them have a background, some of the excellent people who work on them have uh, a background from, from their previous lives in paramilitaries and they do a fantastic job of preventing uh, young men mostly being kneecapped and all that sort of, uh, that dreadful sort of business. But that doesn't apply to other groups who need protection, like disability, transgender, gender of age. Those are people who do not, um, who, who need to have the reassurance 
that a, uh, a statutory group will deal with their cases. And I also point out that the community-based groups are based geographically in very small areas in West Belfast, North Belfast, um, um, Derry, Londonderry. Um, the, the geographical reach that they have uh, is not why, uh, great. And, and I don't see any reason why the two groups, that is the statutory group that I propose and the, um, the, com the community-based groups that you're talking about can't work together, but I do think the statutory group should take, take the lead. Mr Marsden here, who's accompanying me today, has in fact been appointed as the policy lead for a restorative justice working group, which is at the moment actively considering um, what proposals to bring forward. And I see no reason why there shouldn't be both a place for the statutory organisation particularly in relation to re referencing cases to courts and back from courts, and also a key role for the community-based groups who do excellent work. appreciate that. Thank you very much, Judge Martin, and thank you, Chair. Thank you, Linda. Uh, Gemma. Thank you, Chair, and um, thanks, Judge Martin, as well, for coming today and for your work on this. Um, You've already touched on this briefly in your opening remarks. Um, it was about the evidence showing that crimes against older people are often based on their perceived vulnerability and not their age. Um, so in light of that, what's your rationale for recommended age be added? And linking into that, do you think this would in any way dilute the legislation from its intended purpose? Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I know this is a controversial issue. Many people disagree with me on the question of age. But I do point out, firstly, that uh, in Scotland, um, a similar jurisdiction, bigger than ours, uh, this was explored very carefully and evid an evidence base was generated. And Lord Brackadale was persuaded to include age and the Scottish Government have included age. So that's the first country in the UK uh, or Ireland which has included age. So. It's not just a flight of fancy of mine. It's, there is, in fact, an evidence base for it. Secondly, it depends what you mean by hostility. If you mean by hostility towards a particular group of people that you... Like for example, I'm 72, going on 73. I don't feel that people are going around hating me or being hostile to me. Um, I saw in the paper today that pensions are due to be increased by 3%, and therefore some people may feel a bit resentful. You younger people feel a bit resentful about that. But to be serious, nobody really hates older people. How could you? It's like hating mum or apple pie. But what I do strongly believe, and, and there is evidence for it, and the Commissioner... Uh, for older people in Northern Ireland gave a very, very uh, uh, helpful contribution to the review in which he indicated that if you move away a little bit from the word hostility, if you add in, as I propose, words like bias, prejudice, contempt, I have no doubt whatsoever mm. that there is considerable bias, prejudice and contempt. People who decide to break into old people, older yeah. people's homes, to assault them on the street, to pick out an older lady on the street with her handbag as opposed to a young healthy women who might be able to defend themselves, they're displaying, to my mind, hostility, disdain towards those people, which I equate to um, hostility. Uh, and so if you expand the concept a little bit, little bit more to include prejudice, bias or disdain, uh, then or contempt, then I believe that older people uh, should be protected. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence that older people are frightened in their homes, that they are less willing to engage socially. And I think this, uh, this would be a wonderful opportunity, uh, both for them, but also for women coming on to the gender issue, to, to show that the Assembly cares about them and is not going to put up with this uh, any longer. 
Thank you. That, that's really useful. And I uh, wasn't disagreeing with you. And you don't look 72 either. So you can do that. <laughs> well, well um, that, that's very kind of you. Uh, my wedding anniversary is tomorrow. So I'll, I'll remind my wife that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my questions. And thank you very thank much you. for that answer. Very useful. Thanks, Chair. Thank, thank you. Rachel. Very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Judge Marnin. Um, on, a, on a recent point, I'm not a fan of apple pie. Controversial. Um, but <laughs> thank you for your attendance today and also for a fantastic review. Um, I've made way, my way through the second volume, um, but looking forward to finishing it uh, entirely. Um, it's very, very comprehensive. Well, you'll soon, um, you'll, soon, um, you'll, you'll soon have the, the whole the whole summer holidays to read all of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, plenty of time, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> some um, light reading. Um, a number of questions have obviously been asked over d different issues, and it is a huge piece of work. So um, I'm just going to pick up on a few. But there are uh, two key legislative issues um, under the theme of the new hate crime model for Northern Ireland, um, as highlighted in I think it's Annex A of the Department of Justice's brief, which we got, which concern your recommendations number six and number nine that the department are saying need to be considered further. Um, and that's regarding the introduction of a third threshold for proving an offence is aggregated, or sorry, ag aggravated. And the department have said that if taken together with further protected groups based on age and gender, this could potentially make the test too broad and dilute the symbolic power of specific hate crime legislation. And I'm just wondering your opinion on that. What do you think of that um, conclusion by the department? And do you accept that argument? Uh, in, in short, no, I don't. Um, I appreciate the department have produced a, a, a very elegant, well-constructed and thoughtful uh, response, and I'm not making uh, light of that in the slightest. They're only reflecting the views of many people who responded to the consultation period uh, paper. Uh, and in, in essence, what I'm saying there is, I'm, I'm giving you a practical example. So at the moment, the two, um, the, the two features that we have to employ in the law uh, in England and Wales or Scotland is either an intent uh, to um, uh, you know, hit or to show hostility towards a protected group or a demonstration of that. Now, a demonstration would be, for example, if you shouted something offensive about someone because of their race or their sexual orientation during an assault on them, um, then that, that is clear evidence of a demonstration. Intent is a much more slippery beast. And in fact, for, to take, to take disability, which is covered under our legislation at the moment, how do you prove intent against a disabled person if someone kicks a disabled person, steals their wallet and, and goes away? They, they've probably picked them, it's very like age, they've probably picked them because they see them as vulnerable, because they have contempt for their status, their, their, their weak status or what they perceive to be a weak status um, against those people. And to, to deal with that, and the Law Commission in fact has also gone down this route, although it hasn't taken a final view on it yet, to introduce a third concept. Uh, not only intention or demonstration of hostility, but also that someone committed a crime by reason of the identity of the, the protected person uh, is, 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 a, is a concept to be considered. It, are, it already exists in the law in a number of European countries and in a number of states in the United States. The Law Commission has said that it, 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 in, in essence, it sees the, the advantage of it in principle, and there have been some concerns raised as to whether it would broaden the, uh, the scope of hate crime too much. I don't think it would. I think it's, it, it would only affect a relatively small number of cases. 
and it would certainly open the door to consideration of introducing gender, for example, and age as protected characteristics, because uh, it, 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 it makes a more elastic entrance into the, into the world of hate crime for, for, those, for those groups. And as I've indicated, for example, in the instance of age, if you select someone by reason of their age, then not because there's any intent shown or there's any overt demonstration of, of dislike or hatred or antipathy, then it makes it easier and uh, more effective uh, as, a, as a third uh, way of dealing with, with hate crime. Sorry if that's a wee bit disjointed, but I hope, I hope you got the, the gist of it. You did indeed. Thank you very much. No, it was good. It's a good answer. Um, one I was hoping for. Um, so that, in terms what, of, yeah. um, you've just failed the <laughs> test. <laughs> Rach, that's what you yeah. define as a good answer if somebody agrees with you. Well, I, didn't, I didn't say what my, my perception was. Um, in terms of the hate expression, and this is um, um, this is a recommendation that you've made about your strategy duty being placed on relevant public authorities to take all reasonable steps to remove hate expression from property where appropriate in the broader public space. And I'm just wondering if you looked at any examples of this from elsewhere and if it had found any best practice from any other jurisdictions. Um, or are we just operating from a very low base here in Northern Ireland because we already have certain duties in place that are perhaps not being fulfilled? Well, it's funny you should say that. I actually did look to see if I could find any examples from other countries, and I couldn't. <laughs> it seems to be a particularly unusual Northern Irish problem, unfortunately. Uh, and, 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 and you'll note that, uh, that in my proposals, they're tentatively worded that the, there should be a statutory duty to take reasonable steps. Um, I, I understand the difficulties that councils and the Department of Infrastructure, the Housing Executive and the Police have, because sometimes they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. They, they can't win. Um, they're going to offend someone. And yet I do think it is important, in, in the, especially after a new decade, new approach, that, uh, you know, I'll give you a simple example. If you ha we had a, a witness before the, the um, review who came forward, a, a lovely lady from a Muslim background, and she very gently described um, uh, this. She said, when they moved into a particular street, someone put up a union flag outside their house under no other house, just her house. And it wasn't the 12th of July, it wasn't that time of year. And she said the message to us was, get out, you're not welcome. Now, the union flag is, uh, is something uh, many people take great pride in, and justifiably so. But the point is, there was the union flag being used, or abused, I would say, in a, in a despicable way, to try and send a message, a hateful message, to that Muslim lady. That's just one example. I mean, there are many examples you could choose from sadly, from both sides of the community. And all I'm suggesting is that um, when we have that kind of hate expression, the burning of other people's symbols, flags, um, um, uh, you know, election posters, whatever it happens to be, um, uh, when, when that happens, there should be a statutory duty on these authorities to take reasonable steps. And reasonable steps is where, I suppose, we get back to the FICT um, uh, uh, report. It would be helpful be fascinating, in fact, to see what four years of research that they have done into this has actually produced. I totally agree with you. I mean, um, well, it would be good for everybody to see that report. Um, so whoever has it, if they could publish it, that would be nice. Um, and be certainly, I would certainly welcome it. Um, and absolutely, I have many examples in my own constituency of certain activities that have gone on or actions that have been taken 
and people have felt deliberately targeted and we can't find any other reason about why that would have happened and i know certainly in in the council um in arts north down they've certain you know they've been very good at, at, at acting against so say any racist kind of graffiti went up in public spaces very very difficult then whenever it's privately owned but it's on a public space so no certainly um i think i don't think this will be the end of of that uh, of, of this discussion on on public uh, property and hate expression um i had um comment obviously just like linda had on on restorative justice um and obviously there had been um recommendations made within um a9 and tackling paramilitarism and i i have concern that these are going to be kicked down uh, the line again um and ignored uh, by the executive office on the funding um and also um, on the center of restorative excellence uh which is still it's his recommendation a9 and, and i'm glad to see restorative justice and restorative practice been um, considered as part of the hate crime review. Um, but finally, for me, because um, I have a list of questions, I could be here all day. Um, but on supporting victims, um, you had recommended that the PSNI and Department of Justice funded hate crime advocacy service should be placed on a statutory footing. And I would tend to agree with you on that one. Um, but if it wasn't, do you think that it wouldn't be as effective as it needs to be? Or what do you think the consequences of it not being on a statutory footing would be? Well, that's one. The department, generally speaking, have either agreed with my proposals or they have agreed in principle or they want further consideration. But the one they haven't agreed with and they've, they've said should not be going forward is the notion of putting the hate crime advocacy service on a statutory footing. They said that that can be dealt with uh, within the department. Now, I don't mind on which footing it is. I, I, well, it's not for me to mind, but what, what's important is, at the moment, the, this very, very important organisation, which provides great comfort to victims, is living on a, on a, on a shoestring. They're, they're, they, they, sometimes their budgets are six months. I know this is a recurring problem for government. Um, and the department, to be fair, have said that between themselves and the police service, who pay for this uh, very important service, they're hoping to, to create a five-year contract and to make it much, uh, and to um, establish it much more in, in the in the mainstream of public services, and to make sure that, for example, there's a proper career path for the mainly young people who join the service um, from various backgrounds. And as long as that was, <laughs> I suppose, nothing is written in stone. Um, my, my main reason for hoping it would be a statutory service was to ensure continuity, to ensure that it would it would survive a sort of political change or a, a reduction of budgets either within the police or within the Department of Justice. That's the main reason I was suggesting, and still suggest, that it should be considered as a statutory service. In the in the various. Um, Meetings we had all around the country, at, uh, all over Northern Ireland between March and January 2020, there was a consistent theme among victims that without the Hate Crime Advocacy Service, they wouldn't have had the courage to come forward. They're a vital link between the, the citizen and the police. And uh, whether it's done on a statutory service or whether the department can satisfy you as a committee that they will um, honour their, their proposal to have a long-term uh, funding for these groups, uh, I don't mind, but it's something that you should explore, and, and if you, with all due respect, I feel you should explore with them. Uh, my own view is it should be a statutory service because it's so important. Thank you, Judge Martin. Um, don't worry, I, w I will. <laughs> Thank, Thank, Thank you, Chair. Nice Thank to you. talk to you. Thank, Thank you, you, Rachel. Uh, Robin. Uh, sorry, thank you, Chair. Can I thank uh, Judge Marion and uh, Mr. Marsden for, for coming today? Uh, 
my, uh, my query has uh, already been answered. My two queries are going to be answered by the previous two speakers. Just very quickly around the age one then, the uh, survey on age uh, on pay, uh, under paragraph 69, 70 and 71, there seems to have been a, a great disparity on whether the age was a, a factor to be taken into consideration. And you've made the comment about uh, including an agreed age um, where you seem to think that there might be some uh, need for intense discussion on that. So it's just that one point, uh, Chair. Well, I, I, good afternoon. I'm not entirely sure um, I'm, I'm on the same wavelength as you. What I can tell you is that uh, my um, proposal is that there should, even though, even though what essentially I'm trying to deal with here is uh, older age, uh, I think it should be described as a range of ages because there could be cases where people are uh, hit, hateful uh, actions are taken against people because they're young, not very, not as likely as older people. In Florida, you might be amused or interested to know that they they have a, they have a similar protection for age, but for them, elder age begins at 65, which <laughs> I think is a bit young, uh, personally myself. But I think rather than trying to find a particular age, I think it should be described as they do in Scotland. They, they define age there, which is now protected fully under Scots hate crime law in their recent act, they, they, they define age as a range of ages so as to leave the matter open whilst the intention is still to help older people uh, in, in effect. Yeah, uh, and the age may be, uh, health may be a determining factor in, in a person's ageing process as opposed to their birth age. Yes, yes, you're, you're, you're quite right. Um, a lot of older people, of course, uh, also suffer from a, a range of illnesses, which don't affect, thankfully don't affect younger people. And it, it's, those, it's that vulnerability that um, certainly the Commissioner for Older People was, was telling me, um, who made a very thoughtful contribution. It doesn't cause people to hate older people, but it certainly causes certain criminals to see them as easy pickings, if you like. And, and it only adds to the distress of older people, many of whom... Uh, pandemic or no pandemic, feel threatened in their own homes and don't go out very much. Uh, and I think, therefore, this is a golden opportunity to give them some psychological, if you like, protection, that the, the law will come down harder on people who target older people uh, than they will on the, the general population. Yeah, I, I, a major part of my constituency is inner city and uh, a crime against one older person can have a major ripple effect, a tsunami effect, across other uh, older persons in the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to check, Linda, have you another question? Thank you, Chair. Just very quick, I actually had a few, but thankfully Rachel covered them, um, particularly in relation just to the um, statutory basis on the on the advocacy and, and just to say that I absolutely support what Judge Marnon's saying and in relation to the how vital that is because if we're accepting that people are targeted because of their vulnerability, then we're saying they're vulnerable. And if they're vulnerable they need support to go through the process. I just think that's a that's a given. I don't think there should be any um quibbling about it. But if I could just very quickly ask Judge Marnon how broad or narrow 
that he thinks a sectarianism definition should or could be? How broad or narrow? Well, it shouldn't, for example, include political opinion, because in my view that would offend against freedom of expression. Um, it should include, sadly, uh, people of a Roman Catholic or perceived Roman Catholic, Protestant, perceived Protestant. Uh, um, it should include people perceived to be have their cultural identity as British or Irish. Um, the, the traditional markers that we all know exist in Northern Ireland, but sometimes there, there are people who, I mean, I give the, I mean, or people who are perceived to come from a particular a tradition. Um, I give I give the example, for example, of a, a Protestant Irish speaker, uh, you know, as someone who might be perceived once they open their mouth to be of a certain background, um, but in fact is some something quite different, uh, and therefore I think it should be broad. I think Professor Morrow has, even though the definition he uses looks a bit complicated to begin with, I think it is a sound basis for at last, after 100 years, addressing this and, and putting it into legislation um, that, that hopefully works for a lot of people who are treated very badly in, this, in that respect. Thank you again, Judge Marnon, for, for presenting to us. And thank you, Chair, that's me. Thank you. Thank you, members. I don't think uh, there's nobody else has indicated. Uh, but I think that has given us an opportunity to get a sense of I think the department's response gives us some sense of, of a direction of travel. And obviously, as a committee, we'll decide as to how we will take this forward. I notice uh, that a dedicated hate crime branch has now been set up to progress the work and consideration on a multi-agency hate crime review uh, steering reference group. Uh, no doubt uh, the department will have all these various mechanisms put in place and it will be our job to try and keep uh, a focus on them. But in the meantime, can I thank you, uh, both uh, Judge Moran and also Mr Marsden, for coming. And I wish you well on your, on your further appointment. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we look forward to engaging with you in relation to that. But thank you. and. We will decide as to where we go with this, but ultimately it will come at some stage, I suspect, that the Minister or the Department uh, or both will bring forward proposals for legislation. Yes. Uh, but it won't be in this mandate because I think we'll no. struggle to get what we already have uh, through in this mandate. But uh, can I thank you for the time that you've given, the expertise uh, that you've shared with us today and, and your own personal comments, which are invaluable in giving us an insight into uh, this particular issue and thank you both for being with us today. Thank well, thank you for asking me and if I can provide you with any other help in the future, I'm very happy to do so. Thank you very much for that offer. Thank you. Right. Members, uh, just uh, in terms of maybe just to pick out one of those things, uh, maybe, uh, and I see Rachel smiling, uh, she says, are you only going to pick out one of those things? But as Obviously, it's, it's indicated in this that there's a dedicated hate crime branch has now been set up. What I think we should do is we should ask to get them to come and to brief the committee at some stage. I think that would be useful. But on the advocacy piece, we should write back to the department and ask them for uh, uh, their... Now, obviously, they've been dismissive up until now in relation to that, about putting it on a statutory basis. But uh, we should probe that one a bit further in terms of giving us some more advice and if there's any other suggestions that members have as to how we... Rachel, first up. 
Thanks, Chair. Just on that piece in terms of um, if, if it would need to be made statutory or so on, even if funding was ring-fenced, I know they're looking at a long-term sort of multi-year annual year budget for the hate crime advocacy service, but if it's not ring-fenced, it can then be you know eaten into, so it sort of defeats the purpose of, of, of having the, the, the multi-year budgets there um, or on a continuous basis, you know, so it could be reduced. Um, so that would be certainly something, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up as I always do, just in terms of the executive office on where is recommendation A9 at in terms of the tackling paramilitarism program, and that's the um, the sort of justice piece and the centre of restorative excellence, which would be coming through Department of Justice. Yeah. Okay, Linda. Um, I support the the things that Rachel has just said, and then just if we can ask. The department to confirm the impact of waiting on the recommendations in fact might have on including the sectarianism piece in this legislation i really would be concerned around that okay okay and who else raised their hand no there's nobody else i don't think no okay i think i've covered everybody thank you yep just checking, Rachel, have you another query or no? Is just your hand still up? Sorry, I have loads of queries, but I'll not. No. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, uh, thanks for your help in relation to that, uh, members. And obviously, given I think there's a long journey to go on this one, so we're, you know, we're at the, the start of this in many respects. And uh, it might also be helpful we have got uh, there has been changes made to the Scottish legislation and we might maybe even get an update in regards to that because all that they proposed ultimately wasn't uh, uh, put in the final and I notice that the, the Minister is proposing some additional changes so we'll keep a, an eye on, on that uh, jurisdiction as well. That brings us then to item 5, the proposals for the development of a joint secure care and justice campus for children at Woodlands uh, Lakewood site. And the Department of Justice response to the NI report on managing children who offend and other justice issues relevant to children and young people. And that is the oral evidence session with the Northern Ireland Children's Commissioner for Children and uh, Young People. So we're just going to welcome the Commissioner to the meeting. very welcome. Thank you very much, Chair. Good to see lovely, you. Lovely, lovely to be here. I can't <laughs> tell you how great it is to be here. Okay, thank you. Well, listen, we'll not... Uh, just to remind members that the relevant papers for this particular session are at pages 158 to 523. So there are plenty of material that, that you've had to be able to read. Uh, and just want to welcome you both to the committee today and we'll ask... Uh, the Commissioner just to make an uh, introductory, mar introductory remarks, I'll get that right yet, <laughs> and then members will have an opportunity to ask questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, uh, Chair, and, and thank you uh, for inviting us to, to give evidence in person. Um, I really welcome the opportunity to, to be here with the committee and, and to note that this is the, my first time as Children's Commissioner that I've given evidence to the Justice Committee, certainly not my first time. 
um, giving evidence this committee. So I'm very, very pleased to be here. And another highlight is that this is my first evidence session since in the last 18 months to a committee where I've been wearing appropriate footwear rather than my slippers. So again, very, very pleased to be here. You uh, still wear a bear, not a <laughs> yeah. yeah, never. I've never done it in my pajamas, but definitely always in my slippers. Um, I also want to send apologies from our chief executive, Mairead McCafferty, who was due to be with us but was called away at the last minute. And I'm joined by Fiona Cole, our research and policy um, worker. So, as you know, it's Nikki's role to ensure the implementation of children's rights in Northern Ireland for every single child. And children's rights apply to each and every child, regardless of their circumstances or their behaviour. They're not transactional, nor do they come with responsibilities. That said, if we are to fulfil the best, best interests of the child, as the UNCRC and the Justice Order 2002 requires the youth justice system to do, then we must support children to understand the impact of their behaviour on themselves, family, community, and of course victims. That is what makes our communities safer and gives our children the best start in life. So I'm just going to quickly trot through some, some, of the, some of the main issues. So firstly, to custody and the work that's being progressed by the Departments of Justice and Health to reform the regional facilities for children and young people and their proposal to bring secure care and custody onto, into a shared facility. Nikki and, and um, our team have engaged extensively with, with departments on these proposals. And for the record, um, I am broadly supportive of the direction of travel. But let's not be under any illusion that bringing the two facilities under one roof will resolve what really ails our youth custody system, because it won't. Inspections of woodlands are favourable. What happens inside woodlands is, is, is not bad, is actually quite good. The issue is whether it and Lakewood are being used properly. It is accepted that depriving a child of their liberty must be a very last resort and should only apply where significant risk is posed and for the shortest time. Last year in Northern Ireland, only 7% of young people in the JJC were sentenced, with the remaining 93% there either on pace or remand, therefore not convicted of a crime. This is additionally compounded by the fact that nearly 40% of the young people um, in the JJC were looked after children, those cared for by the state. Therefore, how and where children are looked after if they can't be at home is where the heavy lifting needs to be undertaken. The Criminal Justice Review of 21 years ago was the first of many reviews and processes which have recommended sustainable alternatives to remanding children in custody, highlighting the need for a range of specialist and differentiated services for children in state care and others. It is welcome that the shared campus development proposals have identified the need for satellite and step-down provision, but the lack of detail and plans is frustrating and disappointing, and if not forthcoming, may, th may thwart some of the purpose of the new campus. I'm also really disappointed um, that the long overdue legislation to reform bail for children is not being progressed, again putting more pressure on the, su the success of the campus initiative. Um, at, uh, moving on to outcomes. In 2017, the Northern Ireland Audit Office, as, as you know, in its Managing Children Who Offend report, examined the cost of youth justice, aid, of youth justice alongside the strategies and interventions used to address offending by children. They found that the Youth Justice Agency could not assess their cost effectiveness 
and cannot currently demonstrate that the interventions to reduce offending by children represent value for money. The update report published last year outlined that some progress has been made, but again recommend, recommends a development of its performance reporting with greater <coughs> focus on the impact of their work in line with outcomes-based accountability. It's not straightforward to ask an agency to demonstrate impact and effectiveness when success in relation to reducing offending can be complex and multi-agency. However, addressing distance travel for young people across a range of, of, of areas of their lives, such as education, mental health, drug and alcohol use, and stability, is possible. And it's important that every agency, including the Youth Justice Agency, is able to answer the necessary questions of how much did we do, how well did we do it, and is anyone better off as a result? Anecdotal evidence, and, and I've heard much of it firsthand myself, suggests the Youth Justice Agency endeavours to work effectively. However, there is no robust published quantitative or qualitative data to support this view. Moving on to what the system should do. Firstly, we should see the youth justice system as part of the broader children's system, working in partnership with education, youth work and child, child care and others to achieve the best outcomes for children. The Children's Service Cooperation Act and its Children and Young People Strategy provides the framework to do that. And um, Peter Weir would be, would be very familiar with both. It supports agencies to work collaboratively in the overlap areas, which includes early intervention and diversion. In addition to avoiding stigmatization, diversion from the criminal justice system has good results for children, is in the best interest of public safety, and has proven to be cost-effective, according to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. It is therefore a mistake that the Youth Justice Agency's Transitioning Youth Justice Framework outlines their intention to develop and grow their work in earlier stage intervention. Diversion from the system should be the first outcome for a young person in the earlier stages of their offending, and diversion from the criminal justice system includes the, the Youth Justice Agency. Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, are a recognised set of circumstances that for some children, if not addressed, will result in difficulties which include educational underachievement, mental health issues, drug and alcohol use and or criminal behaviour. It is impossible to predict which child will, will, be, will get involved with which behaviours and many get involved with multiple um, uh, worrying behaviours. Therefore, broad interventions and early intervention services for children and their families are critical and should be run by those best placed to work with them, which are childcare and education agencies in partnership with the voluntary and community sector. One of the biggest issues concerning our criminal justice system is delay, um, and, and there has to be activities with the aim of diverting children from judicial proceedings and consequently of reducing delay by having less children attending court. Delay, as you know, was the issue that most concerned the Youth Justice Review, describing the extent of delay in Northern Ireland as unconscionable. They made a clear recommendation that statutory time limits should be introduced for all youth cases, providing a maximum period from arrest to disposal of 120 days. And they said that should be done at the next available opportunity. There's been quite a few opportunities in the last nine and a half years, and today we see little sustained improvement for children um, on summons cases when they have to wait a medium time of 242 days, and for those who have been charged, 117 days. So, so the, the summons children are waiting, uh, 
that figure of 120 has been busted um, out of existence. Just very quickly, I want to talk about two other issues that some consider controversial, but why we would consider imperative if we are to be serious about putting children's rights and their well-being at the centre of everything we do. At the age of 10, Northern Ireland has an unacceptably low age of criminal responsibility, one that ignores the scientific evidence concerning ch child, specifically their brain development, and with regards to a child's development and ability to be held legally accountable for their actions. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has consistently raised this issue, the issue of age of criminal responsibility, across the UK. And again, I was optimistic that the return of devolution in January 2020 provided an opportunity for proper and informed discussions in our assembly and, and to, to look, address proposals to implement the recommendation of the Youth Justice Review that the, age, the minimum age of criminal responsibility should be increased. And my final issue, equal protection for children from violence in the home. The law regarding physical punishment or smacking of children in Northern Ireland was reformed in 2006 to restrict the defence to assault of reasonable punishment of children. It is notable that legal reform has now been secured in the Republic of Ireland, in Wales, in Scotland and in Jersey. The evidence base is now irrefutable and it's well established and shows that the use of physical punishment is not effective in achieving parenting goals is detrimental to children's health and development, including has, having associations with increased childhood aggression, antisocial behaviour and mental health problems, and carries a serious risk of escalation into uh, serious abuse and maltreatment. It is long time past for the Northern Ireland Government to, to both reform the law to ensure that children in Northern Ireland have equal protection to adults in the home, and to better support parents and families with high-quality, positive parenting information and support. When the evidence is so compelling that it is in the best, best interest of our children to remove a defence to assault, no other argument to the contrary can be considered, nor is it viable. So thank you for listening, and I look forward um, to your questions. Thank you, Commissioner. Obviously, the, the two last issues that you raised are outside the scope in terms of of uh, dealing with the issue, particularly in relation to woodland, so those are those are issues that no doubt that this committee will return to at different times, depending on what uh, decision the department takes, if they take any in relation to changing the the legislation as it currently stands. But particularly in relation to the issue of woodlands, you've 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 said, if I picked you up correctly, that you're you're in favour generally mm. of where uh, this is going. Do you see? Because obviously we've had uh, we've had some cor correspondence and we've had some issues raised with the committee, particularly around the differential between pace and Article Forty Four, and how that interface and how that will operate in terms of one co-location or one location in relation to this provision. Have you any, any view on that particular issue? Because I think that is one of the things that, that seems to keep reoccurring. And again, can I just say, uh, this is your first time at the committee. This is my third, I think, committee uh, to chair. So I'm, I'm new at this. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm treading uh, carefully to try to, to get my head around many of these things. But would you want to comment on that? Because there is an issue there that I think uh, 
we need to understand in a very practical way as to how this will operate. Yeah. So, so essentially, you're saying children who are there in secure care, who are there for reasons of the, for care, and children who are there for reasons of their criminal activity, and is it okay to bring them together um, under the same roof? And I suppose, on a on a broader level, I think it probably is. Um, and, and, and would say it was because some of the issues are very similar. Now, the way, the way I understand the campus will be arranged is that children's needs coming in, whether they come in through the Article 44 route or whether they're coming through the criminal justice route, that they will have their needs assessed and whatever their, their, their most paramount sets of needs are, they will go into the bit of woodlands, um, and it's organised that you, you can differentiate in that way, the bit of woodlands that best make, meets their needs. So from mixing the two types of kids, young people, sorry, I'm not anxious necessarily, and we need to see how it will done. What I will say, Chair, is that when Fiona and I met with some young people who had had previous experience, they were a bit anxious. And I was, I was quite taken aback by that. So there is a job of work to do with the young people. Once the plans have been, once, uh, have been as, as part of the process of developing the plans of how this is done, I think we need to ensure that we include the voices and experiences of young people in those planning processes. So in theory, no, I don't have an objection. I am, I am very supportive that the new centre will be based on the needs of the child and we see children with similar needs in both Woodlands and Lakewood. But I think as we move forward, the young people need to be central to how that actually rolls out because they are, they are a little bit nervous about it, certainly the ones we spoke with. Thank you. It's a very long-winded answer to your no, question. No, that's fine. No, thank you. Uh, I want to give members as, as much time as this, so I want to go to Rachel first. Thank you, Chair. You regret saying that. I wrote the questions, as usual. Um, thank you, uh, Kula. Hi, Kula, and hi, Fiona. Um, thank you very much for coming to speak to us today. I know it's been a long time coming. Um, it's been on our agenda for some time to get you in. Um, and thank you for your opening remarks and the briefing paper that you supplied to us was um, very useful. Um, I um, have a number of things just on the, so the, the proposals um, that we're specifically talking about in new regional facilities um, and then a number of other questions just on other youth justice matters, if that's okay. So I'll start with the regional facilities. And you had stated that there remains some work to be done. Um, and I would agree with you. And I think others um, working in children's rights and representing children's voices in this would also agree and, and the committee informally met some of them on Monday um, and I know Chair we have a list of things to follow up with the department on. Um, in terms of the phased basis um, the department seemed to be going with introducing this new uh, regional care facility. Um, I'm not too sure if that's going to be the best way given the unknowns um, but some have expressed um, that the department uh, the department side, because it's joint with Justice and Health, might also be missing a trick, and that actually there's um, we could do some better things uh, with this, and this could be good. So I'm just wondering if, if there, you have any opinion on if there's anything here that the departments are missing a trick on. Um, so I, I suppose that the, what, what the departments have chosen to do is. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want this to sound the way it sounds, but to do the easy things first 
um, and um, look at the service being provided for those young people. The issue, and I'm old enough to remember when the Juvenile Justice Centre was built, the issue was, we lock, the issue is, was then and is now that we lock up too many children. And um, when designing a service that's, that's custodial, the, for custody, we're looking at the current provision and we're investing that money in the current numbers. But actually, if we're serious about reducing the numbers, that's what we should be looking at, so that we invest less money in custody and more money in, in custody and secure care, more money in the community. So it's, it, I understand why they have gone with the centre first, but actually they are investing in something that they will, that if it works out, sh that they should make smaller and smaller but we're not seeing the plans of how they're going to make it smaller and smaller and, and how less and less children are going to go into custody. So from that point of view, it's not the most efficient way of doing it, but it's definitely the, easier, the, the, the easiest way of doing it because they're resolving the easy issue rather than the issue that we have all been struggling with for 25 years. Um, so th that, it's, it's not that they're missing a trick, it's just they've, they've chosen to go with the tricks that... Uh, are easier to perform. Thank you, um, Kula. Um, appreciate your answer. And um, it, uh, in relation to this, um, with, the, with certainly with the, the facilities, um, it's my understanding that in a previous version of the Justice Bill um, that had been drafted, there were provisions relating to the reform of bail conditions for children and young people. And I believe that it was to strengthen the uh, existing automatic presumption of bail children and introduce specific conditions which must be met before a child can be remanded in custody and others in order to com comply with UNCRC responsibilities. Um, do you, would you have any information or could you outline what impact not legislating on this now would have for children and young people? Um, what your position would be that without this and um, would this have any effect on the new regional facilities in your opinion? Well, um, so both both bail, remand and pace are the two areas that have to be reformed. So the fact that we're not reforming bail to make it to make it easier for children to get bail in the community, to withdraw some of the conditions, you know, such as the absence of, of accommodation being a reason to remand into custody, will have meant that less children will be in custody. For reasons they shouldn't be there, we should only, only be have children in custody who pose a serious risk to their community, um, and there is not no way. There is no way that today, say, there's 20 children in custody. There is no way we have 20 children in Northern Ireland who pose a serious risk to their community, particularly when we know that last year 97 of them were bail and, and remanded. So if we make bail harder if we if we put in the measures in place to ensure that only children are denied bail who pose this most serious risk to their community then we will have less children in custody and it is an absolute violation of children's rights to lock up children because there is insufficient services in their communities to provide a roof over their head for example so so i um I'm glad you didn't ask me this question a week ago because I think I would have burst into tears at the fact that we're not progressing with um, uh, bail reform 
because this is another one that's been on the agenda for over 15 years and we should have progressed it 15 years ago and actually it was recommended in the criminal justice review of 21 years ago and we have had five or six generations of children through the system who have had their rights violated and have been locked up needlessly because of, of um, outdated uh, bail condition, outdated bail laws and insufficient services in the community. So, Thank yeah, you. Um, not much opinion on that, Rachel. No, not at all. Um, neither I don't think you could be any clearer. Um, I think it's a damning indictment on any of us um, who, uh, why this is not being progressed. I have absolutely no idea why, and certainly will continue to ask those questions. Um, and I don't think you could have put it any clearer uh, to the committee or indeed the assembly. Um, I want to touch upon two things that is in your briefing. Uh, one is minimum age. Uh, you will know my position on that and the absolute need for legislation on this. Uh, the Assembly must legislate on this. There is no ifs and buts on this. It has to happen. Um, and I would like to know just from your perspective and from the children and young people that you and your office have worked with, um, how important is it that Northern Ireland legislates on the minimum age of criminal responsibility to be increased um, and the future of youth justice and how we deal with many of the issues that young people are facing? So just, just to be clear, raising the age of minimum uh, age of criminal responsibility, raising the uh, minimum age of criminal responsibility does not mean uh, letting children off with it. I have quotation marks. What it means is that we find a different way of supporting children to understand what they've done. And, um, and based on what I've said about adverse childhood experiences, we know that many children find themselves embroiled and involved in offending for, as a result uh, uh, of consequences and uh, things going on at home and in their communities. Therefore, if we remove, bearing in mind what I've said about how long it sometimes takes to resolve cases, if we remove the criminal justice system from this equation, we are more likely to be able to um, intervene earlier and more effectively with these children and young people, thereby supporting them to reduce that sort of criminalised behaviour. If they, it, so um, I think it, it's long, long overdue. The, the Youth Justice Review in 2009 said it should be raised, to, 2011, sorry, said it should be raised to, to 12, and then within three years, it should be raised to 14. So that meant by 2014, we should have had a, the, an age of 14. Here we sit in 2021 when we're still at 10. Um, and also to be clear for anyone who is doubting what I'm saying, if a child poses, poses a significant risk, if a child under uh, 14, similarly as a child under 10 today, if they pose a significant risk to themselves or their community, we have secure care available for those purposes. Um, so I'm not for one minute saying children who may be considered dangerous, bearing in mind there's very few of them, but the minimum age of criminal responsibility actually, I think, ties the hands of, of many to um, intervene early and effectively with young people involved with um, behaviours that may be considered criminal or antisocial. Thank you. Um, Commissioner, and finally for me, just on equal protection, I agree it's long past time that children have, could have, should have, sorry, equal protection. I see no reason why this wouldn't be legislated for us and as a practical, and I think we've had a number of missed opportunities, like oh, a lot of things on that. 
And like, I am disappointed that it's unlikely to happen within this assembly mandate. And I know certainly there have been discussions through the domestic abuse bill, and also there was a, um, a lot of hopes for um, further bills. Um, but we are where we are with the mandates and the times, but there's always next mandate. Um, so just gonna, um, in terms of uh, what you see in Scotland, Wales, Republic of Ireland and Jersey, it's even noted that in your uh, briefing, um, the children and young people there do you have equal protection? And obviously there are commissioners throughout the, the UK. Um, it's been any conversation about what the holdup is here for uh, children and young people, what the difference is? I have no idea what the holdup is here. Um, well, uh, I suppose, um, so uh, what the holdup is here, I'm not gonna comment on because I don't wanna get political. I suppose what I want to see is the assembly, uh, this place, having that debate. I think it would, it would be, um, I, I don't for one minute think that all 90 MLAs agree with us that, um, that children should be supported in this way. I think probably the majority do, but I would, I would very much look forward to having a proper debate and discussion and informing the process going forward. I think this assembly is perfectly capable of making those decisions, so it would be, I know there's another mandate, but um, Rachel, I only have 20 months left in this job. And it was one of my to-do lists when I became Children's Commissioner. And it may be, and I, I would be devastated whilst I watch um, children on these islands. And it looks like England are, are getting closer. If I look, if I leave this job and, and every other child um, in the UK and Ireland is protected and our children are not, that will be a source of deep, deep disappointment and shame for us and for me personally. Thank you, Commissioner Chair. I'll uh, leave that there because I could hog the whole time with this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Linda. <clears throat> Thank you, Chair. And Rachel has covered some of the points, but just to, to quickly go back to one of the, the last points that the Kula made around you know the fact that there is secure care for for a child under 10 and that would similarly remain if the the age of of criminal responsibility was raised which i absolutely think it should be i think that we all need to ask ourselves why any child is a serious danger to themselves or others around them and what we are not doing or where we fail them so that needs to be our starting point when we're talking about these children, not, you know, how bad is a child and, and we need to make sure that they're kept away from the community. It's what have we done to those children or not done for them, that that's the position that they're in. So I, I absolutely support your call and, and I, I do think that it's, it's, it's really sad that we're not in a position that the department did intend to try to bring that forward as a an amendment to the justice bill and we're now not in a position to be able to do that and, and i agree with you in relation to we we have another mandate but that's just further delays for these kids and it, it has an impact on the children who are there now who need our support who need to get the proper interventions so j just to go back to kula to the um the new facility and one of the issues that was raised with us by the groups that we met on the informal session is around, and you've raised it yourself, is around the satellite services. 
and the concern around the satellite services that whilst it sounds like a great idea and it does and it's what we all want to hear it's what we want to deliver but as they have said it's just like a directory there's nothing there and as you said yourself around the detail there's nothing there to say that these young people will actually be able to access the services there's just a list of services that are available what what does that tell us there's no plan in place for these children no plan in place for for what the how the satellite services are going to deliver and the other concern they had was that it was all statutory on this on this directory the community and voluntary don't appear to be anywhere on it and we all know that the community and voluntary sector in terms of support for for anybody in our community are worth their weight in gold and we get let's to, to bring it back to what is important to so, so many people out there, you get far more bang for your buck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that is the truth of it. Like we get far more out of community and voluntary sector. Um, and that's not taken away from the statutory. We need we need the mix of both, but, you, but we do. And so those are issues, Chair, that I think we need to specifically ask the department about. We need some answers around those issues. Um, I don't know if, if Kula wants to comment on it because I mean you're I think pretty much on the same page. But if you just want to comment on on what your view of, of uh, that is, yeah, uh, just to say that, uh, like I said earlier, we know we know particularly in Woodlands that children are there for the for the lack of services, not because of of, of their behaviour. Um, I am um, frustrated. I've been working in youth justice in Northern Ireland since 1998, and I wish I could say this is the first time we've had this conversation. It's not. I mean, uh, I look at the clerk, and her and I in this in this committee um, have had these conversations. So it's deeply frustrating that we have yet to have co a, a proper, comprehensive community-based services, as you say. Um, a, a blend of statutory and voluntary and community that are able to keep young people out of custody. And to make that happen, we need to close the door to the Juvenile Justice Centre as a place of safety for PACE, for overnight remands, and, um, and, and, and make uh, conditions for bail remand into custody much, much tougher. Because until we close the door, and, and don't allow those kids to go into custody, we will not be able to focus the mind of those who run our community-based services. There is no... We tried the softly, softly, wouldn't it be a good idea? It doesn't work. It hasn't worked, in my experience, um, over the last... I can't believe I'm going to say this, 23 years. So um, we need the legislation to close those doors, and, and we need to get on with it and develop those services for those young people. If I can... I think you're right. Uh, just a small addition, Linda, and, and thank you for, for raising this important question. Something we have been in discussions with the department about is a simple mapping exercise that includes community voluntary sector that goes beyond the justice remit, but health, education um, and community. Something that we are seeing is that the statistics west of the ban are further distance travelled to the likes of Woodlands. You're seeing a lot significant numbers um, that have that have community provision. We're asking the simple question, why is that? Is it distance travelled to the JGC or is there provision in the area? We're also seeing some fantastic models 
in the community that, that's looking at this, both here in, in the north but also um, across in Scotland. We need to see that evidence base and we need to see it demonstrated mm -hmm. in, a, in a consultation that, that the community's voluntary sector can incl be included in those solutions. But a simple mapping exercise of why do we not have places of safety, what is required for places of safety, what would that mean in terms of resource, but actually also who would look at it. It should be a social care issue, not a justice issue. But if we have that conversation um, across using the, the Children's Services Cooperation Act, it will put the success of, of this joint campus in a much better and safer footing. Thank you, Fiona, I appreciate that and I definitely think we'll have want to have more conversations and get more detail around, particularly around those models. I, I, I certainly would like to have more conversations with you around those. Kula, I, I mean, you've, you've talked about focus in the mind and I think you're right. I think that unless you, you don't have that option, then you won't be focused and, and to find what the other options are. I think I know your answer to this, but I the issue around the statutory time limits on um, YGR of, of the 120 days, I mean, the, the department have pushed back on that and statutory time limits are only, I suppose, as good as if you make them. and. I think that probably the, the department's concern is that they will continuously surpass the statutory time limits. And that may well happen, but in my view, if you put them in place, you at least put targets. And again, it's about focus and minds. Do you think that there is value in them or are they of limited value if, if, if there's no penalties for surpassing? Well, I think, I think that's the point. I think that, you know, the 120, like I said, was a 2011 recommendation. We have worked um, with the Department of Justice to try and come up with ways of reducing it. They've talked about administrative time limits. They've talked about different projects and different services and different initiatives like early, early plea, all sorts of things. And yet in children's cases, we are, as we say, for summer's cases at 242 days, we've not seen a significant improvement. I don't understand why now we cannot say, right, put in a statutory time limit of 120 days, hold those services, so we're talking PSNI, courts, PPS, um, and, and, and probably the agency, hold them to account uh, to work better <clears throat> together to meet those, and, and understand why, they, if they breach the 120 days, why they have done that. So I, 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 nine and a half years we've been at this, and we're not seeing any improvement on children's cases. We're seeing improvements on adult cases, but we're not seeing improvements on children's cases. Surely now is the time to introduce a statutory time limit. And, and we, have seen, we have seen improvements across the water when they have done this, and I don't understand why there is still a reluctance to do it when they have been given nearly a decade to improve their processes and systems and have continued to fail to fail to do so. So yeah, it's, it's I, the only I, thing we've got left, Linda. I think you're right. I think that if 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 everybody is going to be held to account on whose whose part has fallen down and allowed them to go over the time limits, then then everyone will feel a wee, a wee bit more of a sense of responsibility. And as you say, it'll be in their interest to work together. I do think that that's vital. Just the last point, Chair. Um, obviously, the, the, there are concerns, and this has been raised before, around the number of occasions that young people from Catholic backgrounds, they're three times more likely to be um, detained in custody. And I mean, I accept that there are a multitude of reasons for this, 
but I don't see any plan in place to establish what are those reasons and how do we tackle them and that really concerns me and, and I mean you've talked before about and, and Fiona just mentioned that no solution is just a justice one I, I accept that this is much wider than justice but it needs to start somewhere and the fact is that they're ending up going through the, the court system they're ending up going through the legal system so justice has to look at why is that and if there are other departments that need to take responsibility, then that's okay. But but at least you'll have the evidence there to say that. Just to say, it is an extraordinary figure. Uh, the disproportionate number of children who identify as Catholic in the juvenile justice centre have been has been ridiculously uh, disproportionate for about three or four years, if not longer. Um, the, what I do know is happening is that a piece of work has been commissioned to try and understand what that is. Bear in mind that it's not the, it's not the justice agency's responsibility because they just receive the children. So there is a piece of work that I hope will report soon that will begin to understand what's happened, why that's happened. Is it bail conditions? Is it policing activity? Is it where they live? What are, what are the reasons? So... Um, I, I'm glad that a piece of work is finally commissioned. I'm, I'm frustrated it's been it's it's been a bit late, um, but they are extraordinary extraordinary figures and, and, and ones that we absolutely need to understand and address. Um, so once the work that that's been commissioned by the um, youth justice system has been completed, then then we should expect to see an action plan quite soon. Is my okay, understanding. So if I that has been commissioned by the youth justice system. Yeah, cool. there's a piece of work being commissioned by Queen's. I, I was interviewed by the researcher. So there's a, there's a piece of work being commissioned by Queen's to understand um, what's going on. And then I hope once that, that reports that, that, you, that this committee will then, and, and, and me as commissioner, will then see a plan about how, uh, an understanding of how this, this figure how it's so extraordinarily uh, disproportionate, and then how they're going to how they're going to reduce that. Thank you, Carla. Was Fiona talking to come in there? No. Yeah. Just a small thing, sorry, uh, apologies. Um, it's, it's just really something we've been working with the PSNI on as well, is usually for a young person, the first contact that they may have is with a, a PSNI officer, and it can come in the form of stop and search. Now, there, Section 75 details say that sometimes that those um, religious backgrounds cannot be ascertained, but what we're trying to work with, and, and we're doing a significant piece of work, is how that engagement goes, how, how they actually um, contact that young person, how do they converse with that young person, and can they meaningfully engage that information? Because that needs to be, when they come to the juvenile justice centre, that story is too far on. We need to be understanding very early on, not just from a criminal perspective, but from a safeguarding and a wellbeing perspective, that actually that those interactions, um, interventions need to be happening a lot further on. And that's why we're saying that in, in early intervention, that it shouldn't just be a, a criminal justice, but it should be a, a social care issue, and that they do so, but need to work closer with, with counterparts in those early in interventions. So that work with the PSNI is going on and they are going to be releasing um, a survey that they've done substantially with over 2,500 young people on um, their experiences of stop and search in Northern Ireland. That's really good and, and very interesting to know and I could talk about that particular topic all day so I'm not even going to start but I just want to thank um, 
Commissioner Kula and Fiona for coming to the committee and responding to our, our concerns today. And Kula, I don't think it'll be as long to you're back in front of the committee again somehow. Oh, so. okay. I look forward to it, Linda. <laughs> okay, can I just check? Was any, there's no other members have indicated uh, in terms of, of questions. Can I just conclude by asking Kula, in terms of. So, when we look at this issue in relation to the woodlands provision and what is in the either residential provision, it's not a case of either or. No. It is a combination of both. So, woodlands is there for a purpose. Woodlands yeah. is there um, uh, because society believes that there are children whose behaviour is so serious that they may need you know, they, they, whose criminal behaviour is so serious that they, they need security. Um, the problem with Woodlands is that there are too many children who, whose, whose behaviour is not so serious that it, they need security, but, but they don't have somewhere to go um, or there isn't provision to meet their needs. So we know there's a disproportionate number of young people in Woodlands who have mental health issues. Yeah. We know there's a disproportionate number of Woodlands who have... Uh, drug and alcohol issues. I mean, I could talk about yeah. the lack of, of, of services for, for children with drug and alcohol issues. So we know that children, Woodlands is being treated as a children's home. Yeah. Now, if it's going to be treated as a children's home, let's lower the, raise the age, I keep saying lower, let's raise the age of criminal responsibility and have a different conversation. Um, so let's not be locking up children for, because they have adverse childhood experiences, because they have trauma. These children are not committing crimes that, that, that warrant me and my children being protected from them or, or, or themselves. That is the problem. The problem is we are locking up children for reasons other than their criminal activity. We are locking up children um, because of, like I said, uh, their adverse childhood experiences, their distress, their trauma and for, and for want of a bed. That's the problem, Chair, and that's what's frustrating because what the staff in Woodlands, what happens in Woodlands and also in Lakewood, is, is good, they're getting good services. That's why, they're, that's why they're not kicking up a stink about leaving because the, the, the services have been consistently, particularly in Woodlands, consistently inspected and we're being told what, how good they are. We, children shouldn't be locked up to get good services. Yeah. That's the other soul-destroying thing. Um, they, need, they deserve that in the community. We yeah. have responsibility to them in the community. And, and would you then conclude that that is also a reason why, according to the NIO or the, the audit report, that repeat offenders account for disproportionately high percentage of all incidents representing 72% of all youth and crime and disorder? So, the, 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 so that's, and that takes me to, to, to my point about what works for these young people. What I, the Youth Justice Agency is a very set, a skilled criminal, uh, criminal justice social work agency. It's, it's, they're very skilled people, and, and, and we need them to focus their minds on these young people, the young people who are embedded in criminal activity for, for whatever reason. And, and, um, once a young person becomes entrenched in criminal behaviour, it's incredibly... And once they're sucked into this, this system, yeah. once they, they accept the label that we give them of being criminal, of being this and of being that, 
and, and, and they embrace that label. It is incredibly difficult to get them out of it, but it's not impossible. So yes, bearing in mind how few people, few young, so how fewer young people we have in the criminal justice system, the the, the churn, the churn in churn in custody, uh, the revolving door in custody and in Lakewood, is atrocious. Which is one of the reasons they they bring the centres together to try and have services in place that will be properly address that. But that's what we need the Youth Justice Agency to be doing, Chair. Not earlier intervention, which can be done elsewhere, working with these young people to prevent reoffending. Those young people who are entrenched in this behaviour because of their trauma, because of their, the other issues. Okay, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, there are no other members who have indicated uh, questions. Can I thank you for uh, taking the time and uh, apologies that it has taken. I'll, I'll abdicate myself of any responsibility because no, I wasn't, no, Chad, no, I no, wasn't no. here. But uh, <laughs> uh, and also to Fiona for coming, and thank you for your presentation to us today. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. And look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. I think the last time we saw each other's probably in Ballymoney. It uh, was in Ballymoney. Lady of Lourdes Prize given. I think uh, it, that's what it was. Of them, uh, yep. Several of them. Yep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, members, we just need to be careful and cautious about one wee issue, and that is quorum. Uh, uh, can I indulge? I think we're okay at the moment, aren't we, Kristen? So if everybody can just bear with me, because we have a couple of things that we want to we need to get done uh, before we, we, we conclude. So if uh, we stay as we are, we're okay. That brings us then to item six, which is the justice. Uh, on sexual offences and trafficking and victims bill proposals for committee stage, pages 525 to 583 of the meeting pack, and also pages 120 to 137 of the table pack are the relevant papers. Obviously, the ministers introduced the, the bill uh, on the assembly on the, the 5th of July. And just given the time available for the bill to complete its passage through the assembly before the end of the mandate, is very limited. The committee agreed at the meeting last week that it would consider proposals to call for written evidence following the introduction of the bill, rather than waiting until the committee stage has commenced. Proposals have been drawn up, and we were and they were circulated to members yesterday afternoon, and can also be found at pages 120 to 132 of the table pack. Committee also agreed to request details of the policy to be covered by each of the four amendments uh, to the minister. Uh, and the Minister has indicated she is intending to bring forward, including the wording of the amendments, if available, and confirmation of the provisions that have been removed from the original version of the Bill. The Department's response is found at pages 133 to 136 of the table pack. And the Department has outlined the areas covered by the provisions that have been removed. It also advised that the, the preparation of draft instructions for the amendments is underway for intended use of the Office of Legislative Council for drafting over the summer and will share the draft text at the earliest opportunity. Draft media signed posting notice, a draft letter inviting written evidence and a list of key stakeholders to which the latter will be sent uh, or the letter will be sent have been prepared and it is proposed that the media signed posting notice will be placed in the papers during the week commencing the 19th of July, and the letters will also issue 
that week. And the reason for that is because obviously if we do it next week, it's a holiday week. It's better if we leave that week and go for the week commencing uh, the 19th. And the closing date for receipt of written evidence being Friday the 24th of September, by which time the second stage should be completed. A request for the views of the amendments has also been included in the draft letter to key stakeholders. So uh, really it's to seek the agreement of members that the written evidence in the bill should be requested before the committee stage commences and the media signed posting notice and the letters to the key stakeholders should issue during the week commencing uh, the 19th of July. Are we agreed with that? Agreed, Chair. Okay. Also agreement to the closing date of Friday the 24th of September in receipt of written evidence. Agreed? Agreed. And also agreement from members that the view should also be sought on the Minister's proposed amendments when seeking evidence on the bill. Agreed. And also that members are content with the draft media signed posting notice, the draft list, or the draft letter and the list of stakeholders. I just want to raise maybe, uh, in terms of the stakeholders, uh, is it, I notice that there is no, there's not much reference to education in uh, the, the draft, is there? Uh, I had it earlier. Uh, they're, they're, they're covered. Yeah. Students' Union uh, is included, yes. And the other one that uh, Linda will not be surprised I'll raise, but that is obviously uh, there's no reference to the loyal orders. Uh, under religious organisations uh, with the loyal orders and also if you look at religious organisations while we cover the main, Christ uh, main uh, churches the Church of Ireland, the Methodist, the Presbyterian there's no reference to the smaller evangelical churches organisations such as uh, the Reformed Presbyterian there's a list of them that, that should also be included uh, and somebody else raised with me Yes, the, the and, and in religious organisations, there's no no reference to non-Christian religious organisations. So, for example, the Jewish community, uh, the Muslim community, you know, any other uh, minority communities in Northern Ireland in terms of religious organisations. Any other comments in relation to that, members? Okay, happy enough. Thank you. Uh, then that brings us then to item seven, which is the Access NI Annual Performance Activity Report uh, 2020-2021, the publication of the updated statutory guidance for the Chief Officers of Police. You'll find that at pages 585 to 635 of the relevant papers for today. The Department has provided the copy of Access NI Performance and Activity Report which gives an overview of the service provided to the public. The Department has also provided a copy of updated statutory guidance for Chief Officers of Police issued by IXSNI. This guidance is used by police officers when applying the statutory test to information they hold in relation to applicants for enhanced criminal record checks to inform decisions on whether such information should be disclosed in the final certificate issued. In updating the guidance, IXSNI has consulted with relevant groups, including the PSNI, and are all content with the updated version. 
So just to ask the members to note the 2020-2021 IXS NA Performance Activity Report and the updated statutory guidance unless there is any further information that we require. Okay, thank you. Item 8, that brings us to correspondence. And there are four items of correspondence at pages 67 to 659. And of the meeting pack and five items of correspondence at page 142 uh, to 174 of the table pack. Just draw your attention to two of the items in the table pack and members will then have the opportunity to co comment on any other items of correspondence that uh, they feel relevant. And it's item five at page 142 to 143 of the table pack and it's a copy of a response from the Minister of Justice providing an, oper uh, an update on Operation Encompass, and I know there's an issue that, that Linda has raised uh, previously. And obviously, the, the discussions are ongoing to inform the drafting of the regulations for Operation Encompass and determine how the model will work in practice. And the Minister intends to bring the draft regulations forward in early 2022. Separate, separately, work is ongoing to launch a pilot of the model in September in the down area. So just to note, unless, Linda, do you want to make any comment in relation to that? Um, just, I'm assuming that the delay in that, Peter probably would have been able to answer this one, yeah. that the delay in that was, was COVID, because I know that, that right back whenever we first started discussing Operation Encompass, which seems that long ago now, I can hardly remember when it was, um, that they talked about that pilot. So I'm assuming COVID was the delay on that. And I am glad to say the the pilot coming forward and are just really keen to see the regulations put in place. To be honest, I think that, that this is essential and can really have a, a big impact on young people, on children and the outcomes that they might have in terms of their education. I suppose too, and, and we can seek clarification on that point as to what was it what was the nature of the, or the reason for the day it probably was the COVID issue. But I suppose too the other thing is and, and again, it may be an operational issue as to why they just pick one area for a pilot. Uh, you know, and of course, it doesn't matter where you pick for a pilot. Somebody will always say, well, "Why did you not pick somewhere else?" Uh, but they've gone just for one specific area in in the down area. But we we'll wait to see, uh, and obviously, we'll be interested to see what the outcome of that is. I think. I think to to be fair that, that education actually took the lead on the on right. the pilot in fairness to them were ahead of the yeah. the ball on this one. So it might be worth writing to the to the education minister to Michelle McAbean and asking um, you know, how did they did how did they yeah. pick that area, what was the, the criteria, the reason and, and it may well be something to do with operationally, but it would be interesting to know. Okay, yep. Okay, thank you. No other comments in relation to that. Uh, item 9 at page 174 of the table pack and it's correspondence from the Committee for the Economy seeking evidence on the parental bereavement leave and pay bill uh, by the 16th of August. And the bill was introduced, uh, or the bill will introduce regulations creating a legal requirement for all employer, employers to grant a period of a minimum of two weeks of parental, parental leave. So it's really to get the agreement of members to request the views and comments from the Department of Justice on the clauses in the bill relevant to its responsibilities. 
and any likely implications, and given the closing date for written evidence for the response to be forwarded to the Committee for the Economy as soon as it is received, the Committee can then consider this particular issue at our meeting on the 9th of September. So are, are we content to action the remaining items of the correspondence as set out in the cover sheets, or whether there is any other comments that anyone else wants to make? Linda? Just a quick comment. Um, I'm happy to, to note and action all as is suggested. Just in relation to the parental bereavement we raised, um, and we've raised consistently around the issue of um, paid leave for those who are victims of domestic violence. And I, I think maybe if we can just go back to the department again on that okay. and ask them, are, are they doing any work on it? You know, have they have they done anything in relation to this? at all, um, even in terms of having a conversation with Rachel about her private members bill. Rachel, do you want to, you know, do you want to comment? I can comment. Uh, no, there has been no conversation with me in development of the private members bill. Hmm. But the offer is still there for all political parties to engage, okay. if that helps. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you for that, Linda and, and Rachel. Uh, that then brings us to item nine, which is chairperson's business. Uh, just to note that uh, it's normal procedure for the committee to delegate authority to the chairperson and the deputy chairperson to submit during periods of recess views on the releasing or withholding of information in any known, retained or contentious freedom of information request received by the committee. So it's just to seek the agreement of the members uh, to adopt this procedure over the summer recess. And I'm sure the Deputy Chair will be quite happy to be in that position over the summer months. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Sure, Linda, have you, you. Have you, is there, maybe you just didn't bring your hand down. I just want to make sure. Have you another query? No? It was down I, now. I didn't. That's all right. Sure. <laughs> just say to the staff, obviously this is our last committee meeting, but our staff will be, as always, busy over the summer months, and I know that their their work never stops, and and they have arranged some meetings for us over the summer. So, just want to put on record our appreciation for all the work that they have done all um year. And as I say, it doesn't stop. Assembly make window recess and no committee meetings, but the work doesn't stop for for any of us. But it certainly doesn't stop for our staff. So, just put on record that we appreciate it, and I hope that get some um, sort of a holiday and a break to just get their head shared as well as like the rest of us. So um, just to put that in the record, chair, I think. Yeah, I just want to concur with that, Linda. And um, there is a, I think there is an issue in the, generally in the assembly in terms of the number of staff who have uh, accumulated flexi time and, and so on. So there's, there's a huge pressure on the staff here in the Assembly, but the one thing that has really impressed me uh, since coming to this committee is the volume of work that our staff on this committee have to deal with. And I've said it before, said last week, you know, we're, we're dealing with, you know, seven, eight hundred pages of, of information uh, in our committee packs, and that is a huge amount of material to put together. So I concur with those comments, and, and I place on record our appreciation to Christian and to her staff for the way that they serve as this committee, and trust that they do get 
a bit of a break over the summer. Uh, that just raises uh, or just brings us to any other items of business. Unless there's anything else anybody else wants to raise. And if not, then the date and time uh, of our next meeting, uh, apart from those informal uh, meetings that are being uh, arranged over the summer, uh, is due for Thursday the 9th of September. That's just a few days after my birthday, so you can have the birthday cake uh, on that occasion. Uh, and it'll be at 2pm in the Senate Chamber here in uh, Parliament Buildings, unless an urgent issue arises that requires the committee to reconvene, in which case the members will be contacted. So can I wish you uh, well over the summer period and thank you for your help uh, in the, the meetings that we've already chaired. And there's no doubt we have a huge amount of work ahead of us come September. We'll be busy in the committee and in the chamber, so uh, enjoy your well-earned rest. Thank you very much. You too, Chair. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30? This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is